Tell me, Winston, what are your true feelings towards Big Brother? I hate him. You must love him. It's not enough to obey him. You must love him. You asked me once what was in room 101. Everyone knows. The thing that is in room 101 is the worst thing in the world. America for 300 years has been the land of promise for the rest of the world. The land of new frontiers. New opportunities. Yeah, we can't you get up. Clicking sounds. Sounds that reveal the presence of radioactive rays. The instrument, a Geiger counter, is converting radioactivity into sounds we can hear. And welcome to Tank Riot. This is episode 108, The George Orwell Show. I'm Sputnik. With me, as always, is Victor. Hello. And, of course, Tor Odinson. <laughs> Just Tor. <laughs> well, that kind of brings right. us to our first but first, yeah. which is, as a group, including the Viking Princess, we went to see the movie Thor. Yes. Which was awesome. Yeah, I thought that was. I thought it was a really good adaptation. And, you know, oh, Kenneth Branagh is going to do a good job of it. It was fun. It was, but the Viking princess did notice that Thor was wearing an immense amount of eyeliner. Too much eyeliner. Yeah. And that was Chris Hemsworth. I had a lot of, I was worried about him, worried he wouldn't be able to pull off being Thor. He doesn't it's look like role. in my mind's eye Thor would look. But after a while, I warmed up to him and I thought he was, a, he was, he did a great job. Right. Um, in that role. What, what's wrong with eyeliner? Well, nothing because I mean, you, come on. Like, you were saying earlier, it's like he has Tortal. very Scandinavian, yeah, very fair right. features. So you got to do something to kind of make it stand out. It or, doesn't I, doesn't stand yeah, out that well, much with you, Tor. You use just the right amount. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought Anthony okay, Hopkins was great I, that, as Odin. Yeah, I just thought you're against eyeliner altogether. But you know, no, no, no. It's just with the right amount. Then the Viking it's okay. princess noticed right. it, and when she mentioned yeah. it, I, then I couldn't like stop seeing it. <laughs> yeah. but, oh man! But some of the some of the funny parts and the little jokes and the humor that they oh, brought yeah. to the film. I loved yeah. how that scientist uh, assistant Darcy would, mm-hmm. you know, whenever they brought up Mjolnir, would be, Mew Mew? Mew Mew? He wants Mew Mew? Am I saying Mew here? Am I moving all nimbly pimbly? Because, you know, when I was a kid and I would read that, I had, like, no clue as to how to pronounce that. What's Magellanor? Magellanor. There was a new mutant character. I always had trouble with, like, Ronnie or Rain. I yeah. never knew how to pronounce her name. Like, exactly. <laughs> I swear they did that just to make you feel stupid as a kid. So it was it was really a lot of fun. I thought Anthony Hopkins was oh, uh, yeah. very good as Odin. Mm-hmm. And Natalie Portman. <laughs> I know I've seen her in something before. She was she was Yeah. She was very good. <laughs> she's yeah. actually sort of, like, on uh, movie overload. She's in, like, she, everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She did this movie with a camera, a Rolex and um not a rolex a raleigh <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh she slept in a walmart and had a baby or something <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> at least that's what i read are you just it was random okay. words together you really confused me on no that i'm one. not that that was just a movie review my wife brought me the, to that one yeah so Rick, are you just looking around the room and saying you love things <laughs> i love <Wham. laughs> it's like the usual suspects i'm not sure what's going on 
but uh, but you yeah, know, Jeremy Renner. Vendetta. Jeremy Renner showed up, and uh, mm-hmm. he was Hawkeye, and I knew it as soon as I saw the bow. Yeah. And I hope you know he's also going to be in the Avengers movie, which is right. filming in mm-hmm. right now. So I'm excited about that. They have a whole uh, whole new. Hulk, of course, with the voice of Lou Ferrigno, which I'm right. looking forward to. Back to Basics nice. is good. Mm-hmm. And this Thor was much better than the Thor I saw in the original Incredible Hulk TV show. Right. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was like some biker dude. That was they so funny. put a helmet on. <laughs> and, you know, um, and the Avengers movie will be fine. But like I said before, I just have this real problem with the whole S.H.I.E.L.D. concept. S.H.I.E.L.D. was never a favorite of mine mm-hmm. because it was this overarching group that seemed to have like more power than god mm-hmm. and i don't know they and they figured into the whole civil war thing too way too heavily and... i'm getting tired of mace windu showing up at the end of every marvel oh. film with a little tidbit of what's going to happen in the future <clears throat> i mean okay i think we all remember <laughs> that, um long story short watch all the credits and don't leave your seat yeah you pretty much have to <laughs> yeah. all the boring credits with the foo fighters and then you'll see a snippet of mace windu now i'll grant you i mean Mace Windu, yeah, you're thinking, okay, this is not the Nick Fury too that I remember. There's motherfucking snakes all over this motherfucking film. <laughs> I kept waiting for him to say that. I really did. But but the thing that I thought was really interesting is that if you've ever seen the incredibly bad movie with David Hasselhoff where he plays Nick Fury. Right, yeah. You think, okay, you know what? Thank Maybe God. this is fine. I Yeah. I, I can see Nick Fury being black, sure, after that. Yeah, after that, it was like, oh, God. Anything. The Hoff, really, Nick Hoff. I think I went and drank a <laughs> bottle of whiskey and ate a hamburger after that one. <laughs> it was painful. Oh, I did want to mention um, to you guys, too, that, you know, I'm myself and Mrs. Sputnik are huge fans of Pawn Stars, and in fact, we actually went to the gold and silver pawn shop in on the north part of the strip in vegas and it's very cool much smaller than you think i mean when you look at the shop you tend to think it's like this huge structure and it's really actually very tiny Mm -hmm. i think they're expanding it out more but point being Mm -hmm. they had an episode this week where this guy brought in a straight jacket and was all beat the hell and everything i I just watched that did you yeah that was so cool he Uh brought in he said this was one of the straight jackets that harry houdini used in one of his escapes but he didn't have any paperwork and he didn't have anything like that. So he called in this magic expert, which, of course, you can believe in Vegas, which probably has as many <laughs> like, magicians as, you know, yeah, full phone yeah. book of itself. So, yeah, I think his name is Murray. Murray. Yeah. Yes. And I'd like to see his act sometime. He seems pretty cool. Murray looks like he could do some amazing shit. Yeah. 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 But but he, what was amazing about Murray was is that he seemed to have, like, anything related to the history of magic and he said mm-hmm. that these straight jackets, and the first thing he had to do was verify that it came from this one company, which would have been from that period of time. Boom. There was the label. All perfect. And he said that the rivets are all incredibly individual. They're all handmade. So if we can, like, it's a one in a million shot, but if we can find a picture of Houdini with a straight jacket, we might be able to compare the stitching and the rivets and actually, you know, make, because obviously they didn't have any, right. you know, paperwork on it. Yeah. Sure as hell. The guy came in with a photo, a pretty good, clear black and white photo of 1915 where Houdini did this escape and he matched all the, you know, it's like this this rivet is worn down. This one is raised double stitch at the end. There's just like five stitches ending in a double stitch. So they verified it was Houdini's jacket. Wow. And Mm -hmm. so he said, well, how much would this be worth? And he was $20. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, Rick really wanted it bad. But uh-huh. the guy clearly knew. It's like, okay, I'm in Vegas. Hell, he could just call Penn and Teller and say, 
I got to hear you do need straight jacket. It's yeah. been verified by Murray. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh-huh. so he said, nah, that's because I think he offered him like maybe 20 grand, maybe. Well, I, th- I think Rick went up to 25 grand. The other guy wanted 30. And, and Which still, he would have made a killing. Yeah. If he would have paid the 30, he really screwed up on and, that. And I've never, they showed him afterwards after he let it go, and I've never seen Rick so pissed. He's oh, like, he was just living. He's, he's like, just like, I really, I really, I really, really wanted that. I, I, I think I might just go run after him in the parking lot, you know? <laughs> it was wow. really cool. Wow. Hey, I'm really yeah. sorry I missed the Irwin Allen episode. Um, you know, the thing was, I, the one, see, the, the Voyage of Bottom of the Sea and Land of the Giants. Land of the Giants was never one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. I, I knew kids that were just addicted to that show. But to me, it was always like, okay, you're standing next to the 20-foot-tall electrical outlet again. And here's a giant <laughs> fork coming down, a huge hand. Right. And, you know, it got pretty old pretty quick. And it, it had a kind of a a Dr. Smith in there, too. There was this guy who was always such a weasel. And he would always end up screwing things up and trying to make a deal with the Giants. Mm-hmm. I was really into Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I just lived that show. when they When they replayed that on... Jeez, I don't even remember what channel now. Every morning, I used to just sit down and watch these episodes, and I could not believe how many of them I actually remembered from when I was a kid. I remembered, yeah. and this you just totally reminded me, when I was a kid, I would watch these things on WGN Chicago. Oh, oh nice. Five, eight, eight, two, three hundred, <laughs> Empire. Oh, <yeah. laughs> those Empire carpet commercials. Oh, oh my God. God. Best <laughs> jingle in the universe. Except yeah. for the Ray Rayner show. <laughs> I watch that too. Ray Rayner, he'd be standing outside. He have a coffee and a cigarette. Hey, kids, let's watch a Tom and Jerry cartoon. And he had an umbrella hat. Oh yeah. But I got to tell you about Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. When we recorded the Irwin Allen show, I had just like watched the first five minutes of the the first uh, episode of the TV right. uh, series. But I had we had to record, so that's all I saw. But I I did get through the whole DVD, which is the first uh, four episodes. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I gotta agree, they're pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's just kind of good action stuff, you know. Oh, uh, it is, uh, and it's it's classic Irwin yeah. Allen because they reuse like you can definitely see monsters from Lost in Space in there. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can see all kinds of things reused. The first season was very Cold War, so they were always kind of dealing with the Russians. Yeah, or Werner Klemper, of course. Colonel Klink was you know played an <laughs> evil Russian and so forth. But yeah, or uh, Central American, uh, you know, republics that <laughs> yeah, banana dictated. republics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they were always trying to get control of the Sea View, and the Sea View was always amazing to me because they, they, everything was always really clearly labeled. And of course, you're on a submarine that can dive deeper and go faster than any other submarine. Yet the circuitry room is completely bare; it's just laying out there. <laughs> and there seemed to be like they were all officers except for Patterson and Kowalski, Pat and Ski. <laughs> I like Kowalski. Kowalski was awesome. And, and he, they, all, their sole job was, I think, basically just to always keep a fire extinguisher nearby because if something hit that goddamn sub, it was going to blow. Kind of like yeah. the Wojohowitz of the show. He was he just, just like it sounds, Wojohowitz. <laughs> so these guys were always, you know, like going up to the control room and trying to hose it down and. There was always a huge so, but pretty early on, they started to think, okay, we're going to go with a lot of undersea monsters. We're going to go with aliens from space. We're going to, you know, do everything. And this was also a highlight of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Lee Crane, the captain, his mind was altered by almost anything that came on that sub. So if there was an alien, <laughs> if there was an intelligence, there was an influence, <laughs> Captain Crane was definitely under it. 
<laughs> it's like maybe we don't need this guy running the ship. I, I'm just I'm throwing it out there. But the characters, you know, him included, they really played their parts well. They did, I thought, and, and yeah, they're, you know, fascinating to watch. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and then of course, you, there's a whole lot of smoking going on in a submarine. Oh did my they? god, yeah, the cab <laughs> or the admiral is always in there. Puff, yeah. puff, puff. <laughs> and I always love the theme song too. You know, where it starts with that. The sea view looks like a you know a 1950s Cadillac. It just does. stretched out. It's very finny. Yeah. Uh, and it had the big, well, that's why they call it Sea View. It had the big glass nose, and they were always having to close the collision doors because sure as shit, something was coming right for the, the glass <laughs> yeah. windows. But So well, that's my contribution to Irwin Allen. We missed you on that episode, but hey, you know. Yeah. I'm all better now. It's <laughs> good. So um, uh, Green Hornet came out on DVD. Oh, yeah, The Viking Princess and I watched that. You know, it it got a lot of bad reviews. And, and I have to say this. like Seth Rogen was probably not the best choice i mean i mean he wrote it and he directed mm-hmm. and so forth so maybe it's you know a little bit too many things so he was kind of doing like the wise ass kind of college kid a little bit too much but there was kind of an aspect in there that they didn't really deal with in fact i think they made it worse mm-hmm. is that robin is um bruce wayne's youthful ward right and that makes sense but Cato is actually the more talented but of I the thought, two. But I thought that was awesome. And the Viking princess loved Cato. And Cato was Kato great. Cato was but, perfect. But the thing was is that, you know, he didn't really have a name. He was – they kind of brought that up. And, in fact, they, they sort of made it worse is that, oh, he's just Cato or he's mm-hmm. he's a Green Hornet's friend or, or – you were and, and, and the thing is he works for him. He's like a servant, you know, right. and that's kind of – but the Black Beauty was so cool. Right, right. And but I think they gave Cato enough credit and Cato gave himself enough credit. Yeah. And, and it sets them up as this it was this buddy partner film where they weren't really buddies or partners. You know, right. there was so much clashing going on that it sets up it sets it up to for them to do another one if they wanted to. I, I right. doubt that's gonna get greenlit, but no. if it did, they, they could easily take Seth in a more serious direction right. and the the character of Cato into a uh you know, a more partnership direction and That'd be a kick-ass film. I think so, too. And, and their whole idea for, you know, their whole reason for crime fighting was basically, well, we're not really doing anything else. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of fun. Well, you so. know, <laughs> someone else uh, emailed us, and I, not an official mailbag item here, but they told us that we should go see the movie Super. And I saw a preview for the film Super, and I really, really want to see it. But yeah. it's not playing here, and I'm going to have to seek it out somehow. Oh. But it's Rain Wilson and, um, oh, crap, I forgot her name. From Hard Candy, and she played Kitty Pride in the X Men Three film. Oh um, yeah, as yeah. as people Sounds who decide good. to be superheroes, but they're mm-hmm. they're pretty. It's it's a it's a little bit I would think like uh, Kick Ass in its graphic portrayal of what it would Kick be. Kick Ass to be a superhero. was so good. Right. I really love that. Yeah, I think that just came out. So anyway, yeah. You know, just to go back to Thor for just a little bit, mm-hmm. um, the Colbert show uh, was on the other night, and he was talking about how much Thor the movie made in its opening week, and and he was concerned, you know, doing his usual conservative, you know, arch conservative pundit rap that mm-hmm. people were, beco- you know, really interested in, you know, pagan mythology and that they were becoming vicarious. Vicarious. <laughs> it, it was really good. He, nice. just, he just kept throwing them out there. <laughs> nice. Well, I thought they did a great job of Asgard and I thought it was a beautiful film. It Asgard, was. I've been looking for wallpapers for that because that's that was just gorgeous good stuff. And it sets things up for mm-hmm. the mythology can exist. You can have this weird mythical place existing interdimensionally. Right. They, they did a good job of landing it in science fiction 
as well as in the mythical, oh, why yeah. why are they seen as gods? Well, they showed up in the 900s, you know, right. and people heard about that. It, good job. And the around. Rainbow yeah. Bridge was so mm-hmm. cool. And Heimdall showed up and had a oh, nice part. Yeah. Character of Loki was well played as well. Very much I so. thought he was much less mischievous, but apparently... I think he might show up in the Avengers a little bit, so I think they well, might make him more mischievous. They're as he building goes him up. I think they're going to be. And yeah. Loki is the kind of character that deserves to be built up over a couple. He was that uh, way in the comic book movies. though, too. I mean, he was mm-hmm. always, you know, kind of a little mousy, mm-hmm. more behind right. the scenes. But then he became much, much more aggressive. Right. And if you want to read more depth into this, the whole Frost Giant thing, and then the whole betrayal. I mean, you've got Branagh directing it, so you've got King Lear. Plot yeah. lines showing up, a little yes, bit of uh, Henry V, you know. So you've sure. got these great lords and, and this divisiveness and the jealousy and wonderful. And Anthony Hopkins, who played it in a very Shakespearean manner, which was great. Perfect. Because, I mean, Odin's yeah. a tough... Costumes were great, too. Yes. And I always mm-hmm. thought the costumes of this would be hard. You know, the, the gods would be hard to portray. Mm-hmm. The the frost giant realm was well done. So oh, yeah. kudos. I'm glad it's shaping up. Um, they're already yeah. talking about a Thor 2, and I can't wait to see, you know, Captain America, X-Men First Class, and even that DC film, Green something or other. Lantern. Lantern. <laughs> I'm going to go see that because I'm course. a huge horror. Yeah, yeah, but... no, I want to see that. And also, too... Um... Captain America, I was I was leery about, but then I saw the previews for it, and I thought, oh, God. I mean, all I had to see was that sneak preview of the mask coming off, and there's the red skull. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone's favorite Nazi super villain, so. I tried pausing that on, on the TV, the DVR, and I still couldn't see the red skull, so apparently I do have to go to the theaters. No, I have to go. <laughs> so, yeah, good times. And then the thing that I mentioned last time, which we can touch on briefly if you want tonight, is... You and I got two tickets to the gun show. Oh, the gun show. And we brought my dad. It was the three three of us went to the gun show. <laughs> it was so much fun. To all our European listeners who've already written us, we're sorry we're scaring you talking about guns. <laughs> but see, I mean, this 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 was... This is Americana here. It's yeah. one of those things that I, I wish I could invite all you, o- everyone over to see one of these <laughs> because this is the greatest people watching you'll ever have. It, it should be a ride at Universal oh. where you walk through the Wisconsin gun show. <laughs> It's, well, it's it's in a certain sense in you know uh, as as people call it outside of Madison, the People's Republic of Madison. Mm-hmm. In fact, th- this whole gun show was very much on the you know down low. Right. So they just had like a, a radio ad for it that it I just was, happened to it hear. It was out on the west side. It was on the extreme in west side, Middleton, in Middleton, <laughs> away from the sensibilities yes. of. But you know, generally when you think of going to a gun show, it's always very much a sporting. Sportsman event. It's you go for over unders, double barrels. In the old days, they were very much like a boat show, where you exactly. go there for boats and you look at things that float. <laughs> and then again, a gun show. Now you don't look at guns to use for hunting. No, these are guns that do amazing, crazy, weird things. They're going to protect me from the government. <laughs> I'm going to use the raging judge <laughs> to protect me. And someone did write us. It definitely does shoot four ten shells, which is amazing. Oh. So yes. That's okay. So, so you go, you go to this, and and the first thing you have to see is the picture, the, the, the signs they have in all the doors saying, you know, no loaded magazines, no chambered rounds. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, okay, you know, this is going to be fun. Yeah, people walk check in. your guns at the door. Check your guns. It's not a coat check. It's a gun check. People walking in and out with like two or three rifles, you know, shouldered and. Mm-hmm. Gun show post Columbine now means we're going to get all the extreme right elements in one room. Matter of fact, we ended up talking to one guy 
who had a sign on his table that said, if you're a liberal, and then in parentheses, communist socialist, don't talk to me. Yeah. And it had that twang to it, too. I, I really honestly felt like oh, it had yeah. that twang. I mean, it was pr- printed, but I could sense it, too. So, of course, I talked to him for the longest time. <laughs> and, of course, all the pro-walker stuff. You know, our esteemed governor. Yes. Uh, what beats 14 runners? One walker. <laughs> <laughs> and there were, there were lots of posters. There were lots of uh, T-shirts. Oh my! The T-shirts were probably the most offensive thing. Oh, they were. Um, I'm trying to remember. Oh, one that I found was really offensive was a uh, guns are like women. If you keep them around long enough, you just want to shoot them. <laughs> These are T-shirts they were selling. I know, and that, that's actually one of the milder ones. And then the I Stay mean, Puffed huh. Marshmallow Man one, where the where the marshmallow was wearing Nazi uniform. Oh, and, yeah. And holding one arm up saying white flower. White flower. White flower. I know. It's like there is oh, no man. place you could wear that shirt <laughs> no. and not feel like, okay, I got a huge target on my back. We had a debate. Like, is this even too ironic? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How could you wear this? <laughs> You're going to have like, a, like, some people are going to laugh. Some people are going to try to kick your ass. Yeah. So we had a lot of fun looking at the T. Oh, and there, there were printed pictures of Obama and horrible Oh God! He was dressed up like a pimp. And, so, yeah, it was embarrassing. Yeah, oh, it was just awful. It was really Although awful. I did buy the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger, where he was the governor, and it just said "Shut the fuck up." <laughs> that I put that on the fridge. Yeah. That one was just too. I cool. haven't put my. Uh, you also bought targets that were Nazis, that were zombie Nazis, zombie for Nazis. target practice. I haven't put it up yet. I think I'm going to put it in some kind of frame, but that will go somewhere in the studio. We'll oh, to... absolutely! And the brain <laughs> is separate, so you get extra points yeah. for just hitting the brain. <laughs> You've got a Nazi zombie coming to attack you with a <sighs> and... brain target. There were, there were so many things. There was like the guy that just dealt with Imperial Japanese naval stuff. Like mm-hmm. he had like uniforms, actual uniforms. Well, the 1936 Olympic camera. Tor, you would have died. I showed oh, Tor yeah? the picture when he was over last time. That oh, uh, The Leica. The, the Leica camera. From the 36 Berlin Olympics. And the lens <laughs> oh, yeah. cap had this you know, huge eagle, Nazi eagle with the, all the Olympic rings yeah. and everything. Yeah. Oh, it was very cool. Yeah. that That is pretty cool if it's... Uh... If it's real and not a reproduction, there but, was there was an ass load of Nazi paraphernalia. Yeah, there. yeah. and the guns ran yeah. from ridiculous to sublime. It was just oh, amazing. They had fifty calibers. They had like whole aisles of Kalashnikovs, mm-hmm. any kind of variation. M sixteens. The M sixteen that, of course, I love the best was the Captain America. Oh, the Captain F- America M sixteen. <sighs> it, it it was red, white, and blue with the flag stripes and stars on oh, it. Oh my god! And we thought this is Man. the only, the only guy who could own this gun would be the guy from Tremors. Grizzly single shot, fifty caliber BMG, based on a World War One anti tank cartridge. Anti tank had the bullets custom cast from solid bronze. <laughs> Man, Birch, you put a whole new shine on the word overkill when you need it. And don't have it. You sing a different tune. <laughs> exactly. It's like the only character who would have a red, white, and blue M16. Oh, it's just awful. <laughs> it was really awful. So you're walking around and you're just looking at us switchblades, brass knuckles, yeah. axes, battle axes. And the sword and knife tables were really hilarious because when you started talking to those guys, they, they were like just trying to move the fantasy knives because nobody wanted the fantasy. No one wanted a Klingon knife or, you know. No, yeah. no. But, but they, they draw a lot of attention. They're like, I'll sell that to you for 25 bucks just yeah. to get it off my table. <laughs> but there's all kinds. Of like, what is it? What they have a euphemism was like, easy open or automatic open. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you mean a switch play? Swi- oh, switch plays <laughs> abounded. <laughs> there were knives I had to ask people about because I had no idea how to even open the thing because no, it was so locked and hidden and very crazy. I'm glad we went. That was fun. And some of the people there were really, yeah. I, I didn't wear a 
Wisconsin 14 shirt or anything like that. <laughs> oh, no, no, because, that would not have gone well. Yeah, we, we tried to keep it on the DL, although you and my dad got went off, started talking about something. Um, and I, I kind of walked away to look at some AR-15s while you guys were talking your liberal trash. <laughs> well, at a certain point, you kind of have to sort of clear your palate and go, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, we were pretty astounded. And and honestly, part of me that does hunt, I saw some really good hunting guns and some yeah. classic collectible weaponry that I think that's true. some guns deserve on mantles. You don't even have to have the chambers, you know, in your house. Guns yeah. are sometimes just as cool as cars and and it was funny to me seeing how like the pricing really varied with well you know we have hungarian ak-47s and romanian oh yeah hungarian is like you know they're all highly sought after (laughs) Mm -hmm. for one reason or another they had like a a bunch of walthers Mm -hmm. and lugers which were gorgeous but well and now we have the official dagger on the table for while we podcast we do we do have our day we have our replica dagger on the table our dagger is unsheathed while we cast We'll sheath it at the end of the show. So, welcome to Tank Riot. Yeah. So, we were unchanged by that gun show. So, you know, there were a lot of assault weapons also that would fold into stocks. There were all these SEAL Team weapons. Oh, my God. That reminded me, what about that Osama Bin Laden character? And SEAL Team 6. Yeah. It's, you know, okay, I, I I could I could flip a coin on what your reaction would be because you could go from really pithy I think Sputnik to to really appreciative and I'm curious which way you'd go. Well, okay, let me put it this way: when I first heard about it, okay, first off, I thought, okay, this is very odd mm-hmm. because <laughs> it's what was that joke they had in the Onion about? Um, Courageous Pitbull <laughs> travels a thousand miles to attack owner. <laughs> you know? Or what do you get when you cross Lassie with a pit bull and a dog that attacks you and then goes for help? Well, I mean, cause, so, so, so you go into the compound. I mean, the whole thing with the Pakistani intelligence, I mean, you literally could have just gotten <laughs> like, <laughs> welcome to F Troop. Yeah. <laughs> hey, go out in the suburbs and see what you can pick up. Well, there's this guy who keeps buying all this shit. But, uh, so, I mean, yeah, we, we give them billions of dollars a year to be our friend. Obviously, right. money well spent. <laughs> money well spent. Yeah. But be that as it may, so so you go into this compound and you know, you shoot the guy in the face, you but and then you you wrap him in white cloth mm-hmm. and then throw him into the ocean before sunset as is Islamic tradition. But you go into his house and you shoot his head. So, I mean, it's kind of like the pit bull right, traveling right. a thousand miles to attack his owner. We yeah, don't want yeah. to insult you, but we I'm going to shoot you in the face. We, 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 we observe the proprieties, if you will. I mean, we don't it, it, it's kind of kind of mafia-like, you know? It is. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, so, so we get – it's like when they asked Malcolm X after JFK was killed and people were really pissed off when he said this, well, the hens have come home to roost. Right. Meaning if you, you involve yourself in wet work – assassination work and that's really what debate has come down into this country is like well should we do have a full occupation or just get a you know seal team in there and shoot them in the head mm-hmm. it's like really those are our two <laughs> well when you think about what actually were our enemies al-qaeda who actually brought down the twin towers 
a Wetworks team basically matches the team that they were using to fight exactly. us. So yeah. personally, I'm not against a Wetworks team. And I'm more like, great, that's well, that's our real enemy. That's the head of the snake, basically. And yes, others will prop up. And if I could travel back in time, I probably wouldn't try to kill Hitler. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. but, but we, we did it. And quite honestly, that was our excuse for being in this dumbass war for 10 years where we're trying to rule a country that we shouldn't be ruling in any way shape or form and and we killed the guy who attacked us and i think that's awesome i'm actually very glad when my when my brother called me like immediately after the twitter sphere went crazy (laughs) no doubt ex-military so when my brother called me even before the president had spoken and alerted me to this i think i was editing tank riot at the time and uh i said oh i need a break i'm gonna watch president talk i was actually totally happy i was like great great and then i was like show me the pictures because that's the kind of guy I am. When my country, <laughs> I want it as a wallpaper. When my country shoots someone in the face, I want to see it. And I hate to celebrate yeah. the death of someone, but you know, I don't care. I really don't care. This is, in my opinion, one of the people that we've talked about in the past about the death penalty. I'm not necessarily for the death penalty, but there are some people on this planet where you should pull the switch twice for. Absolutely. And if you get a chance on someone like Obama to pull the switch, great. I'm so glad we did it. We never would have caught him at this. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh. No, no, this is... The, yeah, this is the kind of thing that everyone's been doing. But No, I, I think I know what you're saying. And, and I agree yeah. with you to, to a point. But I guess what I'm saying is, okay, after, after the Second World War mm-hmm. and, and they captured all these high-ranking Nazis, you had FDR, Stalin, and Churchill. Mm-hmm. Churchill said, you know, being the classic English imperialist that he was, saying, I don't think we should tell anybody – Anything that we even have them, just take them out back and just shoot them and be done with it. No, seriously, <laughs> be he did. Done, yeah, yeah, be done with it. Uh-huh. FDR, of course, you know, it's like, oh, no, no, we have to have this, you know, huge trial, jurisprudence, it has to be on the world stage and so forth. And, and I suppose, yeah, if you're trying to build a United Nations, much like a better version of the League of Nations, that's probably what you mm-hmm. want to do. World One power, mm-hmm. right. new order. I myself kind of <laughs> followed more along the Stalin lines, mm-hmm. which was... No, they're going to be killed, but let's have a show trial. Let's <laughs> put on a show. Right. <laughs> because the thing about yeah. Osama bin Laden that always bothered me was he's like a religious fundamentalist of any stripe. They he's purport- a rich kid, religious fundamentalist. Right. Yeah. Spoiled brat. True. Yeah. yeah. Funder. The money man. Yeah. But, again, of any religious stripe – fundamentalists always feel that they have this closer connection to whatever deity they worship mm-hmm. yet seem to be the people that cause the most destruction to their own group. So bin Laden killed a lot of Muslims. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to me, that seems to violate some of the most basic tenets of, of Islam. Um, so am I unhappy that he was killed? No, but like Joseph Stalin, I think if you can if you can wrap his you've got the time to wrap his body, mm-hmm. put it in a helicopter and take it out to sea so like Hitler, no one can, you know, make a shrine out of, you know, where he was buried. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Couldn't you just like trank him, put his ass in the helicopter and have a good old show trial? Mm-hmm. I mean, to me that would seem much more scary. You know, if 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 you're a, a world terrorist, yeah, you gotta think that someone's gonna try to put a mm-hmm. bullet in the back of your head. Mm-hmm. But if they, if they can, in the middle of the night, like pull your ass into a helicopter and take you thousands of miles, yeah, and put you on trial. Well, I guess they had a contingency for that. However, um, apparently, the way the seals work is they give you a split second to surrender 
And if you don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. if you don't, then they plug it's you. Right at us. So I'm like, he, he like had his chance. <laughs> He's charging the bull. It's a frog. <laughs> it's coming right at us. That old South Park. So, Shut while trying to escape. <laughs> yeah. So that I mean, the, the the seals gave him a chance, but it was very short, and he well, didn't take it. And the other thing, the other thing I would say about this is, yeah, the the whole mission itself. This whole idea that this mission happened in 40 minutes, and they must have trained for this for a long time. You got to think. Um, yeah, for that's months. That's pretty goddamn amazing that uh, nothing yeah. went wrong. That's you know? true. Uh, imagine if one of the SEAL team members was killed and we heard about it in the news. Oh, or yeah. imagine if they, it wasn't Osama bin Laden in there. Or, right. yeah, uh, imagine a bunch of ways this could have gone wrong. Or the Pakistanis caught on to us or captured us on radar and somehow That's true. nailed us in some respect. It's pretty gutsy that this yeah. but happened y- the way it did. And, and You know, we've had like 10 years of missions going bad. You know, we're bombing wedding parties. We're right. shoot, oh, shooting God. people at yeah. How at, at many crossings? And yeah. you know, yeah. We're, but so it, yeah, it's like I am really glad. Finally, we 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 got one right. We got Osama bin Laden. He's the big dog. We took him out, and uh, we got all that intelligence from it. Yeah, and that's it, the other thing. In, in that amount of time, they still got all those hard drives out of there. That's true. A, as an yeah. IT person, I mean, it's kind of interesting that they were able to pop those out as quickly as they did. Right. I guess forty minutes in and out. I mean, to deal with a firefight I was amazed to find out that his doing. password was Big Booty. Big <laughs> 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 no, I thought it was password. Password. Yeah. How many times have I told you? How many yeah. times? Yeah. Must use capital letters sometimes, and instead of an S, use a five. <laughs> instead of an A, use the at sign. Uh-huh. And at use numeral. a numeral. Upper and lower case. We want strong <laughs> encryption. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, you can argue about the technicalities, but I think, you know, overall well, it's showing... And, and it's and Obama's looking a, a you know a bit bit better leader than uh, well, his the, predecessor. Th- that's the thing. Getting back to uh, the 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 president, that's what troubles me the most. Is you know all the pictures pol- you know published of him you know most intense forty minutes of his life, and he's just staring at the monitor, and then laying wreaths at nine eleven. I mean, what is he Rudolph Giuliani now? And mm. and then you yeah. know increased heavy bombing in Libya. It's like he's really stepping into that commander in chief role to do what? Is it for re-election? Is it to try to appeal to the right? I mean, why did he show that long form birth certificate? That was re- that was stupid. The timing of that was really weird. I mean, the timing of most of the, yeah. the timing is always going to be weird about these kind of things. But yeah, there are there are already conspiracy theories. We'll probably <clears throat> get into this later. But that that Osama is not actually dead, and that or that he died ten years oh, ago. There's tons of conspiracy yeah. theories. Let's not on waste that. time right now. Check about him for freezer it. burn. Yeah. It's, it's just yeah. hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> But, but they didn't help themselves by killing him and burying him at sea immediately. I mean, that doesn't help the the, the anti-conspiracy conspiracy theory. No, yeah. just, it makes it worse. I know. They just made it worse. You know, in yeah. maybe, I don't know, uh, part of me says, well, fuck the Muslim world in, in mm-hmm. that burial immediately within 24 hours. And let's mm-hmm. just keep him because this is such an important character that we need to make sure that this is the person. And I don't you, know. I, I, I know it's upsetting to think that way victor you know that as soon as they publish those pictures mm. you're going to see all kinds of tchotchkes come out and in fact when the, this gun show is next year i'm sure you're going to have those like windshield visors <laughs> and probably unfold no matter how grisly it is 
I know. And the internet is filled with grizzly things. We've oh, all yeah. stumbled across yeah. them. And I think sure. we're all big enough kids to or handle look, it. Or look for them. Yeah. Them. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. I look for them and then I've been so aghast at what I've stumbled it's on. Like, that, oh. oh, my God. Lemon yeah. party. <laughs> <laughs> it's always those keyword searches. There's things you don't you. need to find. Um, yeah, there is an Osama bin Laden uh, photo on the internet, a kill shot thing, but it's definitely from someone it's, else. It's definitely yeah. fake. Right. Yeah. But it's still a kill shot and it's still someone's dead and it's horrible to be yeah. looking at these things. Yeah. But in this case, I would like to see if there's some kind of pictorial justifiable evidence. But as we talked about in well, JFK, there's video evidence of JFK's assassination and that's sure. not good enough anyway. It's, it's like, you know, the, so. these articles they were reading, like, you know, the, the Pentagon mm-hmm. is trying to deal with all these reports of all these just random shootings by American soldiers of the indigenous population in Afghanistan. They call it hunting a haji, mm-hmm. you know, and they just go out and they look for someone just to plug, Yeah, you know? So it's, it, yeah, I mean, this shit's, it's becoming way too Roman. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you have these wars for so long and people, you know, are on so many tours of duty. You, yeah. You get stressed out. Mm-hmm. You've got a gun. It's, it, it's not right what they're doing, but it, it, the situation leads to that type of th- that, thing happening. That's like that documentary that was recently made about that outpost in Afghanistan, that really far outpost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot the name of it. Um, I think I know the one you mean. I, I couldn't, I can't actually. You really it. can't blame the soldiers. It's just, it's good to see it from the soldier's perspective. And a part of the reason why I was so happy about getting Osama bin Laden is it takes away the reasoning and the rationale of why we're in these places where we should not be. I feel there's no reason for us to be over there. The Taliban will end up running things, I'm pretty sure. But, hey, I think those areas are so destabilized. It's not our role. And it wasn't our role in the first place. But but see, now we're in the business of of nation building. $10 billion a month of nation building is too much. For just 50 cents a day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When you've got governors and people like Scott Walker reducing the government itself. I mean, this is the ultimate goal of a lot of these groups is to reduce government's ability to do anything except fight war. Don't pay teachers so everyone's a good stupid loyal worker basically you know using the intelligence we got you know should we be able to send the the seals on maybe a dozen more missions and take out al-qaeda altogether and then uh and and then phase out iraq afghanistan start sending the soldiers home and and we can send in the peace corps you know wouldn't we get more bang for the buck doing something like that or we could do is maybe try to work more directly with these burgeoning democracies and representative governments in the middle east yeah maybe maybe uh work with israel to say maybe shut the fuck up yeah (laughs) you could share (laughs) yeah we we gotta get maybe we could do that i don't know i'm just throwing it out there yeah we 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 gotta find a way for the crazy talk we gotta find a way for the palestinians to live or Live an admirable life. Eve's plan. That was the quest for peace. Quest for peace. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I hear what you're saying, Tor. And, and yeah. the, that's the thing is that what, what makes me very uncomfortable is that this all feels excruciatingly Roman. Right. You know, where you just, yeah. I wish to have him killed. Remove this burden from me. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not to say that I, am I, am I unhappy that a person like Osama bin Laden is dead? No. On the other hand, the world's full of assholes. <laughs> 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 that's a hell of a long list yeah seal team six can be busy for a long time <laughs> at right. that rate true <laughs> true so team america I mean, Let's, seal team six is now team america team america <laughs> oh i think one thing we have to mention is um well two two things uh the new season of doctor who which i believe is awesome 
I do. Uh, episode four will be out by the time this podcast is released. So I'm really mm-hmm. looking forward to Neil Gaiman's story, yes. The Doctor's Wife. Yes. That's that's really awesome. I felt the third one about the pirate ship was a bit of a dip in the road, but nothing terrible. I like that one better than you did, but I thought the first two were very strong. Mm-hmm. And I mean, those are those kind of time travel stories that really screw with your head. Yeah, I thought it was a wonderful beginner. And obviously, they're going to go back to that storyline because there's a lot of unfinished business there that we have. One to get of our to. listeners wrote in and said, "How do you feel about Amy Pond? She's probably the most attractive of the companions, and probably the most sexually aggressive, mm-hmm. you know, toward right. the doctor." And so, what do you think? And I would say yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's good because you know all the other women who who have been companions have always been these kind of you know, shy violets. And it's like, oh, I can't really say anything. And mm-hmm. it's kind of nice to have someone who's like, you know, hey. Well, and you've got the doctor's wife in there who's also very aggressive. And it's good to have good female I characters that are fun. I can't figure out what fun. the hell she is. Very confusing. Yeah. I, I'm finding that storyline very confusing. It'll Dr. be interesting because that's got to keep going. And, you yeah. know, that's got to resolve itself. And speaking of new seasons, the first episode of the new South Park season with the um, human... Senta, human centipad. I sent an iPad. Oh, <laughs> that, that, I mean... So Victor and I are both Mac users and Tor and I are, are both longtime open sourcers. So we're definitely not anti any of this, but obviously Apple mm-hmm. has its own kind of image issues mm-hmm. and they just hammered on the EULA agreement yeah. and what Steve I What Jobs. I thought was really interesting about that EULA agreement thing that they just kept yeah. hammering on is, well, uh-huh. hey, everybody else in South Park Universe, you obviously agreed to the same thing because you're all using iTunes, too. You know, like... Because it's you, on iTunes. South Park is on iTunes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if everybody... No, no. I mean, like, if all the characters are teasing the one kid about not reading oh, the EULA... right. Well, they all had to not read the EULA, too, or they wouldn't have agreed to what's in the EULA. Right, because you, yeah. you can't go past it if you don't. Yeah, yeah you can't just have itunes without agreeing to the eula yeah and you know there's Hmm. there's a lot of there i think on the media did a wonderful show about a year or so ago about eulas and their uselessness in court and how they are so useless that you can't no one could be held to a eula but i think what they were doing is you know they were they they were going on about the the genius desk and everything and and it was perfect because it was like that sort of whole kind of apple culture i think the whole point of that show was also to get to the human centipede because it was. I have seen the movie The Human Centipede. Oh, me too. And it was the most <laughs> god awful piece of dreck that I've seen in recent history. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel so and I've seen some god awful pieces of me dreck. Me too. Not trauma films that meant to be a certain level of god awful, but films that were, I think, aspiring to be something and turned out to be heinous and just rotten and evil. And right. The Human Centipede was a horrible film. Well, like about... on a scale of one to ten, where one is like a Disney movie and ten is like German <laughs> necro porn. <laughs> About, I think it's about an eight. <laughs> I think it's about an eight. I think Salo or whatever might be a little higher. But yeah, the Human Centipede was really awful, and I I fast forwarded even parts of it, which is almost against my religion. I'm almost yeah. you know I must watch every second of every. Oh God, no, not that frame. <laughs> oh, skip that. Skip, skip that. But it's about uh, hooking three people together in yes. an unholy chain of uh, one human being. Uh, and it was awful. It was awful. It was awful. And South Park made a parody of it, and it was awful as well. And then so, it worked in, in, but worked it in worked, Apple. And, yeah. yeah. So what year did the Centipede movie come out? Maybe two years ago, three I years say ago. It was like two years ago. Yeah, okay. Two years ago. 
It's on Netflix, but I don't know if you want your kids seeing <laughs> yeah, that you yeah. previously watched. Don't do that. Stream. I wish you could alter that because I certainly don't want <laughs> yeah. to be Viking Princess stumbling on that piece of crap. Yes, it is. I have too many weird documentaries <laughs> on my list. Oh, watching Nazi documentaries again. I... You're not always <laughs> Nazi documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> but. Yeah. yeah, but you're right. I do know way too much about that period of time. Sometimes I branch out and watch Stalinist documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one more but first, and then we definitely are going to get to George Orwell. Uh, there's this channel that um, I've discovered called Logo. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I think, mainly for the LBGT. Mm-hmm. Um, the letter crowd. The letter crowd, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I guess you could call it the gay channel. Right. They always have the the best shows on there. Like they they're running all the absolutely fabulous uh, series, which I adore. Yeah, me Mrs. Too. Sputnik and I just record all of those and watch them over and over again. I just love those to death. Uh, Joanna Lumley mm-hmm. and uh, Jennifer Saunders are just hilarious. They're both great. They also like rerun Daria, and of course, one of my favorites, Strangers with Candy, which is the first time I ever really saw Stephen Colbert mm-hmm. before The Daily Show. And uh, it has Amy Sedaris. Um, yeah, she's great. Who's, who's David uh, Sedaris's yeah, sister. sister. Oh, my God. That show is so over the top and so funny. It used to, they used to show it on Monday nights. And, boy, if you need some hard-edge mm-hmm. comedy, it is Monday night. I'm a ginormous fan of David mm. Sedaris. I've yeah. read most of his stuff. I've listened to him say most of his stuff. That's the best way to handle hearing David Sedaris is, is actually hearing him oh, say the yeah. words himself because he's, yeah. he's just brilliant. Anyway. He, has, he has a great way. Yeah. So anyway, I just want to say the big shout out for that channel because like I say, I've rediscovered AbFab. Mm. Well, like I can't say rediscovered because I've got like every special and every yeah. show on DVD. And cool. I was hoping Joanna Lumley would be somewhere in the crowd for the Royal Wedding, but <laughs> they did a great one for that in South Park uh, last night. Actually, I didn't the see it. Royal Pudding. I didn't see it yet. Oh, God, it was very good. It was very good. Anyways. We Ger- have to talk about Eric Blair. Eric Blair, a.k.a. George Orwell, and we will discuss how he got that gnome de plume. Uh, right. George Orwell is probably my favorite author, as we've discussed in um, our podcast about... Five novels, or favorite novels, whatever we call it. Yeah. In fact, I would go so far as to say he should probably be the patron saint of ta- Tank Ryan mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, a very interesting person... I mean, I, I love his books, but I think what, what I find the most interesting about him is that he's pretty tough to categorize. I think he's he's, he's just a very real pragmatist. I, I always think of him as uh, someone of the left who can be very critical of the left, in fact, maybe more critical of the left than the right, because he expects more of it. Right. He's, and, he's, he's an honest character. A very honest mm-hmm. character, and and he certainly, um, you know, he was, uh, you know, born in in nineteen oh three, and he uh, died in nineteen fifty. So what I think is very interesting is that he was raised in um, a very critical part of of English history, in that it was the late imperial period, yeah, going crossing over into that post World War Two, empire's gone. We're gonna do things this way now. I mean, I can't imagine what a guy like him would have written had he lived through the 1960s, you know? That's right. Oh, yeah. What would what would he have thought about the Cold War once it actually turned into the Cold War? In fact, he's often credited for coining that phrase, the mm-hmm, Cold War. Mm-hmm. But hmm. 
Anyway, so he was a he was a young kid in the early 1900s, leading up to World War One. Mm-hmm. And once he actually started writing, once he actually started deciding that that was something he needed to do, he he was most known in his lifetime as an essayist rather than a novelist. It wasn't until right. mm-hmm. later on that he became known as this great novel legend. Well, he was, you know, he was also mm-hmm. known, you know, he's, he was kind of an essayist, uh, literary critic. Journalist. Journalist. Um, he definitely wrote about things that he experienced and saw firsthand. What what always struck me the most, and I think probably most people are familiar with, um, you know, obviously 1984 and Animal Farm. So let's mm-hmm. save them for last and... Kind of well, get into what is probably two earlier uh, stuff. Was. One one interesting yeah. um, thing about those two books, though, is that together they've sold more copies uh, than any uh, other two books by any other 20th century author, which <laughs> I, I think is just amazing. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot of books. That is a lot of books. And, uh, and, and they're actually out of copyright in some countries. Mm-hmm. Not America, thank you very much, because we have yeah. the most wicked copyright law in the world. Mm-hmm. So oh, look yeah. for uh, GeorgeOrwell.ru or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> you can find these works right. in public domain because most of them slipped. So mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. So Orwell's uh, early life, and yes, his his real name is Eric Arthur Blair, and George Orwell is his writing name, his gnome de plume. But yep. I, I think let's just refer to him as George Orwell to yeah, keep it. George Orwell. Yeah. So he took it as a name because he really – George was King George at the time. You know, he really wanted to have that. Well, his, his – um, um, one of his uh, publishers suggested it because, well, he felt uncomfortable. Well, you know, actually we should we All should right, save fine. that for later because right, it, it probably will make more sense in the overall sweep of it. But So he's, he was born yeah. in like India, Imperial India. Yes. And yeah. then moved to – England, England, when, but his father mm-hmm. stayed. His father did not in India, which was not considered unusual at that period of yeah, time. Because so there was a good like years he didn't see his dad. Right. He, yeah. In fact, he didn't like see his dad until like 1912 or mm-hmm. something. It was this very long. Yeah, period time. really. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you have to realize too. I mean, that was like a six month sea voyage too. Mm-hmm. You know, going through the Suez Canal and you know working your way through the Indian Ocean through the Suez. Up through and around, um, you know, Gibraltar. and mm-hmm. But what's interesting about George Orwell, I think, is that he's always considered to be very insightful on English culture. And, and one thing about the English, especially in the late imperial period, is that, and I, I'm sure probably true today, I think as we saw at the uh, royal wedding, was that they do have a pretty rigid class structure. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was probably one of the reasons that they did so well in India is because the caste system and the British class system probably worked. Yeah, they kind, kind of, of dovetailed. thought the same way there. Yeah. But <laughs> he's the one who said that he was from the lower upper middle class. <laughs> lower upper middle class because... <laughs> I love it. Which kind of makes sense because in in England at this period of time, you could have had money at some period in your family's history... Right. And you could still have the titles and and the privileges and so forth, but really not have you know a pot to piss in. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. The most of their wealth was gone by then, and but they they were not lower class. They were you know up there, and and he went to um you know board. This is a time where boarding schools, boarding schools, you know, I think in yeah. England were were popular right through. I want to say probably the sixties and the seventies, where mm-hmm. if um mm-hmm. you know let's say a parent died or 
both your parents were alive and they just like, what do we do with Junior? Well, we'll send him to boarding school and you were yeah, just gone yeah. for this. So so it's like when you when you watch a Christmas carol, you know, about the eighteen forties or earlier, you know, and Scrooge goes back to his early life, that was fairly common, right, you know, through a lot of current English history where yeah, you yeah. just went to a school and you lived there. And, and of course, there still are boarding schools, but yeah. I mean, this is something you really associate this with, you know, that time period. Yes. Yes, you do. Yeah. Can you imagine? I couldn't imagine sending my kid away. Oh, yeah, go go live there for a year. Okay. Yeah, and they just show up like years I'll see later. You in summertime and, when yeah. we'll get together and we'll hang <laughs> out for no a couple input. weeks. <laughs> I have like, no idea who you are. It's such a crapshoot. Yeah. It's yeah. going to come back as. That's crazy. Yeah, it that really is. Very is. Weird. Why have kids in the first place if you can't uh-huh. spend any time with them? I don't. So um, he did. There was money in his family at one time. His great grandfather. Uh, was a wealthy country gentleman uh, in Dorset who uh, married daughter of of an earl. So, you know, there mm-hmm. was certainly money and title there. The earl and, and sandwich. Didn't, didn't they somehow make money off of uh, <laughs> a Jamaican slave plantation or something yeah. like that? Well, yeah. what's what's interesting to me is that his father, uh, that we just discussed, he worked in the opium department of the Indian Civil Service. Now, what is that? Yeah, <laughs> the opium department. I mean, are you stamping it? No wonder he's never available. <laughs> I'm always busy. So you know it's like English made. <laughs> Victoria Regina. Well, dude, so it's been like 12 years? Oh. <laughs> How long have I been here? Yeah. <laughs> so he grew up uh, largely with his uh, mother and mm. his two sisters. He went to a public school. Not originally. He actually went to to a Catholic school. That didn't really work out, and uh, he ended up going to public education. He had to. Be, it was interesting because he couldn't go to public school because they didn't have the fees. Yeah. So back then, I guess the the public school was the expensive one. Yes. Yeah. Whereas a, a convent school or a religious school was. Oh well, yeah. Well, we'll just teach anyone. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. It's like, well, okay, that's kind of a bit reversed, but. Um, yep. Well, he ended up at St. Cyprian's School. That was the one in East Sussex that he mm-hmm. wrote. He wrote about that one in one of his essays. Um, such, such were the joys. <laughs> such, such were the joys. Where he talks about, you know, just the, the hideousness of, of mm-hmm. living in these extreme class structured schools where, you know, everybody was, you know, dressed a little bit better, had this background that was a bit better and that and it wasn't just a matter of and he was always uh very intellectual he mm-hmm. was a writer very early on and always did very well in school generally mm-hmm. um but well, he wrote this yeah. he wrote this piece that kind of explains i mean this is his first round of really experiencing authoritarianism and mm-hmm. and he wrote this thing about bedwetting which it's, it's kind of poignant because he was a bedwetter at the time. Mm-hmm. I wonder why. And yeah. uh, and <laughs> he would get punished for it. Um, so yeah, he'd be it, basically beaten for wetting the bed at night. Mm-hmm. And it's like for a period in his youth, he kind of regressed to bedwetting. Mm-hmm. He had, you know, stopped it and then right. kind of went back. So, so, you, so, but can, so he learned. So the, the way he described it in Such Such Were the Joys is that he learned that he could sin without actually committing a crime. He he learned that he could involuntarily sin without doing anything right. wrong or or having control over what he had done wrong. And mm-hmm. it, it really fills in the gaps of how you could see some of these characters he writes about even later on running into things where they're being punished for things that they're not sure that 
why they're doing something wrong. It's very draconian, mm-hmm. and it's it, not it explained is. to you in any way, shape, or form. And one of the things that you can see is that he was exposed to this you know, pretty early on. And one of the, I think, recurring themes throughout Orwell's life, and certainly through his books, is that he had this extreme distrust of these totalitarian, fascist ways of looking at things, and not just a government, but a person's way of seeing mm-hmm. things or their own internal prison or you know, draconian way of looking at themselves or the world or how they connect to the world. So even though he hated English imperialism, he kind of liked English culture and civility. And though he was uh, an atheist himself, he had an attraction to certain, you know, Judeo-Christian principles and so forth. So there's a lot of that. What always drew me to Orwell, though, was that he was able to to take these things and just examine them. I mean, he he was he wasn't a person that just seemed to assume something. If if he experienced it, he would talk about it and say, "Look, here it is, warts and all." Mm-hmm. And I've I've always really admired that about him. I mean, it, Animal Farm is is a great example, right? Um, but in any case, you know, I guess what I would like to do is kind of maybe skip ahead to Burma, sure, sure. his yeah. period in Burma, where he um, well. Let, well he got a scholarship. He went to Eton College. He, yes. Up to like 1921, yeah. he went to school. Uh, he, he was a little bit... He was very well educated Yeah, in the English system. Yeah, and yeah. He, he even acknowledged that he was definitely upper class and you ignored the lower classes. And, right. and it was just the way yeah. you behaved. Yeah. And, it's, it's how you were brought up. And, and, and then they run, ran out of money a little bit. Yeah, and you know, with his family life, of course, you know, his dad wasn't there for a good chunk of it. His two sisters, one was five years younger and the other one was five years older. So they weren't real close in age, so that kind of kind of left him by himself. Right. So I think it, he said it sometimes he was you know kind of lonely. Yes. So, so I, I think that was of, probably not an uncommon yeah, thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of build uh, uh, what kind of life he's going through. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so after he left school, uh, his his first posting was a, as an imperial policeman in Burma. And you know this, he was a very young man. Yeah, and, this but, is something he signed up for. Yes, because he thought it would be uh, kind of neat to work in, in Asia. And that's a very arduous journey. I mean, again, that's probably easily mm-hmm. six months, and then you're working the land route through. And you know, Burma's not now Myanmar, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's 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 a pretty inhospitable climate. It's right, extreme jungle, rainforest. But you guys know how in modern culture, say. You have a job and you stay at it for like six years and then you right. kind of move on to another job. You know, in my dad's day, you found a job and you stuck with it till you retired. Like that was it. You stayed in the yeah, same Yeah, but in those days, the job. company stayed with you too and right. promoted you and right. trained yeah. you. And... I know. My point is mm-hmm. when you get to a character like George Orwell, you know, he became a Burmese police officer basically. Right. And he stuck with that for a while. Like yeah. he wasn't one of those, I'm going to do this for yeah. life. He stuck with it for a number of years and learned right. – Geez, this is all there is. This is all it is. This is what it yeah. is. He, he, I need to move on. He did pretty well at it. He got some pretty good, high responsibilities. I think he was. Oh yeah. What I had responsibility for a city of two hundred thousand or something like that exactly. at one point. Exactly. And then he was promoted to assistant uh, district superintendent. You know, which and and so I mean, he he 
was promoted to, you know, higher and higher levels within the Burmese Imperial police. So yep. he did, he did quite well. Um, and, but at one point he got, uh, dang a fever, right? He got sick. Yeah. 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 And, and this is again, a recurring theme is that, you know, George Orwell was sick through a large part of his adult life. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I guess as part of the contract to be the, this, uh, policeman, was that he would be allowed to go back to England or, or Europe. Yes. And uh, so he decided to do that. And uh, once he got back, he reflected on his work as policeman and decided he didn't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. That's true. But what the um, the books and essays that, that came out of it, well, the book, I Burmese should say. Days Burmese is Days is novel about yeah. And his the, time there. The two essays, A Hanging, which is mm-hmm. excellent, and Shooting an Elephant, also very, very good. Yeah. <laughs> it really captures yeah. that period of time yeah. beautifully. Shooting an Elephant, isn't that, uh, isn't that a, a Thomas Edison story? <laughs> that's, that's, it should that's, be, if that's not. That's electrocuting an elephant. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. What did you yeah. do to Winky? Poor Topsy. <laughs> Topsy, that's right. Uh, yeah. Winky yeah. was, wasn't Winky the, the one, uh, the elephant from our zoo that, like, crushed a small oh, child? Oh, yeah, yeah. But I think, I, I think, but I think we'd all agree hmm. the child had it coming. It did. It was whining so much. <laughs> no, um, the the hanging or a hanging is a really great short story. Yeah. It, it did remind me of some of the like Sartre kind of uh, stories or Twilight uh, Zone. Yeah, um, it had that real existential yeah feel to it, and and he what he does is talks about a prisoner who is being escorted to his death for some crime he'd committed earlier. And it's unclear what the crime is. It's unclear what the resolution is going to be. You know, throughout, you just he just gives you the, the play-by-play of this is what's happening to this human being and us as human beings as we're leading this one human being to end his existence. And right. it's just, it's amazingly poignant. And it's really well-written and it's a great short story it's a great little essay and this mm-hmm. is what he was really 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 good at and why he became so popular as a journalist and as, mm-hmm. as an essayist in his time is because mm-hmm. he was able to just capture the urgency and emotional landscape so well in print he was a great writer at that so mm-hmm. uh, i recommend that that would take someone 10 minutes 15 minutes to just sit down and read if you have a few minutes you could even pause now and read that but that's right. You a know, great, great short essay. And I would say while you're reading it, definitely listen to Johnny Cash's The Mercy Seat. <laughs> off of uh, the American recordings he did with Rick Rubin, because that's okay. that is like one of the best pairings there you go. of your wine and your cheese. There you go. All right. <laughs> yeah, and it and it's at this time when he comes back to Europe after India that, that he consciously decides that now he's gonna become a writer. He's gonna become a writer and he wants to uh, learn more about other social classes because clearly now working in Burma and working in this imperial colonial system, he wants to know more about the different classes in his own country. So essentially he, at that time it was called tramping about. (laughs) And (laughs) uh, so he he essentially lived in, you know, some of the poorer sections of London and in Paris. Nowadays that some means something completely different. It does. <laughs> Tramping about, yes. Tramping about. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he he did an extensive amount of time doing that. Yes, he did. And, and from that 
uh, came the book Down and Out in Paris and London, and mm-hmm. that he uh, was published in 1933. Now, I first read that book. One of the jobs that he does is he's a dishwasher. So he takes a lot of these, you know, kind of menial jobs. And I was a dishwasher at the time, and I was reading this book, and it's like, wow, this just hits it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, he has this way of writing something where where it just captures this whole atmosphere. Yeah. And just – It's like you're there. Pulls mm-hmm. it away. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. But and, and not only there in the – seeing what's happening, but knowing how that affects the person who's doing the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's he's, it's amazing. It really is. Uh, an excellent book. Definitely well worth your time. If you haven't read it, it's it's very good. And I think that we, what we should mention, too, is that this is like a, another time that he, he fell seriously ill, uh, which is in 1929. He had all of his money stolen and all his possessions from the lodge. He was in, you know, the flop he was in. Hmm. He, again, was very, very sick and had to take some time recuperating. At he had that a t- bit of the grip. The grip, <laughs> the dropsy, <laughs> the vapors. I, I've read so many Russian novels that involve I know where the grip. Talk about the grip, <laughs> and everyone's going to the southern climbs or I'm the like, sanatorium, or the sanatorium. Which Orwell did. He mm-hmm. he went to at so, that time. So, uh, uh, for the you. sake of our listeners, uh, what exactly is the grip? <laughs> Um, tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He, he had bronchial problems yeah, throughout yeah. his life. And yeah. tuberculosis was a big problem in the day, and you know it was even a problem here in the seventies. I mean, yeah, I remembered uh, some abandoned. There is an abandoned sanitarium that I used to go explore. Oh, cool! And, and it was creepy, and it was you. you the calendars from nineteen seventy four would be on the wall still. Wow. Wow. We're talking like at least ten years later, and you could find coins on the ground, and you could explore the elevator shafts and. Yeah, you could. It wow. was it was like full on zombie apocalypse to nice. go looking wow. in a building like See, that. If you did that now, you could be like in Ghost Hunters and just have your uh, night vision goggles <laughs> and me, scare the me, shit yeah. out of yourself. Let me just say that uh-huh. we might as well have been in Ghost Hunters because we scared <laughs> the, the living shit out of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing scares you more than going into an abandoned hospital oh, building because no there were there were X ray oh, yeah. rooms. There were like sure. there were the big light setups. There were the clean down morgues. There were. Wow. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh my God. And we didn't really have flashlights generally, right. so we were doing all this exploration. I know. No wonder I don't sleep well. <laughs> you know? All it takes is like one squirrel dashing across the room and you're wringing your shorts. I know. Up, you know? No, I know. And, and a squirrel in those situations sounds like an elephant. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh my God! What the hell is Something's it? crashing at me. It's coming right at me. Again, like ghost hunters. Like, what was that? Are you there? It's like, oh, shut up. Oh man. But but he managed to live with. Probably tuberculosis for a long time. Yes, he did. Yes, and, he did. Yeah, it's a horrible disease. Um, and, you know, around this period of time, too, he started uh, teaching. So that was like a, a period of his life where he, um, he you know, taught school for, for a period of time, which was probably fairly decent money. Um, his editor at the time, though, or his publisher, I should say, suggested, um, well, Orwell didn't, re- or Orwell didn't want his family to know that he was tramping around. Mm-hmm. That would have been a disgrace to the family, and and so he said, "Well, why don't you try a you know a, an assumed name?" So he came up with uh, a bunch of them, <laughs> like uh, P.S. Burton, uh, Kenneth Miles, Richard George, Head, Richard yeah, Dick Hurts. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that was <laughs> I.P. Daily. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god there's a tiger by Claude Badley <laughs> okay <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> that's a 
classic. If you dig hurts, you can't. Now we're going to hear a bunch of angry email from Amanda hugging kiss. Yeah. <laughs> George Orwell and H. Lewis always. And he, he finally settled on, on George Orwell because he thought it was, a, you know, a good sounding English name. And it is. And there's and an is, Orwell yeah. River that he liked. So Orwell comes from this river. <laughs> and George, what the heck? Let's pay, face it, we're not going to get past England, Dick Hurts. You know. <laughs> 1984 wouldn't have been as, as the impact. It's like, by Dick Hurts. By Dick Hurts. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> he uh, <laughs> he wrote a novel later on that uh, in 1936 that that I always enjoyed. It was like uh, keep the aspidistra flying. I, I can never pronounce that correctly. Mm. As, as aspidistra, I believe it's. In any case, it's a plant, <laughs> and uh, it's it's a novel about middle class pretensions. And if if it had been written in fifties America, it would have been about you know the suburbs. But you know, certainly that okay. Here's mm-hmm. the middle class. You're really no different than anyone else. You're workers like anyone else. Right. Yet we're going to do all these things. And uh, that that book is is really fascinating to read because that that again is another great chronicle of English culture at that time. Mm-hmm. And again, 1936, you have to remember, I mean, again, this is still the, the late imperial period. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, it was in transition then. Wasn't um, Edward the king at that time? I believe he was. You know, the one that, you know, you, they said, well, you know, you can't marry this Amer- this common American who had been divorced twice. And it's like, well, no, it was basically because you were a Nazi th- sympathizer. But King's speech? No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, not George the Sixth. <laughs> I think it was Edward the Seventh. They all wanted to marry an American. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, mm-hmm. we are pretty exotic. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, keep the Aspidistra flying. I always thought was was um, a very a very good novel, and uh, again, just it captures that period of time. But I think you could look at it at any point. I think in a young adult's life when you you have the job, you have the wife, you have a kid or two, and you've got the job, and you're just doing all these things that you never thought five years ago or even two years ago you'd be doing. Mm-hmm. And it's a really fascinating um, book, I th- I think. I haven't read that one. I know, I know I'm kind of like <laughs> skipping through, but I, I guess basically I really want to get to like the politics and yeah, let's, of, let's, of George let's Orwell. Mm-hmm. There's the Road to Wagon Pier. The Road to Wagon Pier is is a great one because it's it's probably one of the more examined books mm-hmm. that he wrote because it was very critical of the left about depressed Northern England, depressed Northern England, and he definitely saw that. Yes, he himself, with his experiences with different social classes, was definitely a leftist. Now, call that what you will. I think Orwell himself described himself as an anarchist or a democratic socialist or however mm. you want to peg that he certainly was on the yeah. left and i think would be you know considered probably at this very conservative period of time especially in america probably extremely left mm-hmm. yeah but he's definitely like anti totalitarian yeah right and you know it's always interesting to me how people um since orwell has died take his criticism of the left is that he's like 
kind of a closet conservative or that he in fact well is this sort of you know right winger and it's like no we'll I, get we'll get to that i know why i know why there's some well, I, I can there. understand why they say that mm-hmm. but I mean, it's like i don't think i think that betrays the fact that you haven't read anything of Orwell's because yeah. no, that's not true. Maybe you he should, expected more out of the maybe left. you should dig a little deeper deeper if you don't yeah. understand what right. where Orwell's coming from. Mm-hmm. That's I mean that's yeah. personally what I think when when someone he's not a conservative in any way shape no, or form no but he was he was very critical of the left but because... he's not he's not a vegan no weirdo either you no, know? no no and, no no yeah mm-hmm. I mean. Orwell is is the type of leftist that we need so much more of. Right. Now. Right. And he, he really, I think, like to emphasize the, the democracy part of the democratic socialism. The rights of the individual. I'll look at your government and your own mm-hmm. assumptions all the time because you could be way off. And can I just say to all our vegan listeners... <laughs> We didn't mean to, <laughs> we didn't you know, mean to call down you your windpipe or anything. But, uh, <laughs> no, we didn't mean that. No, what yeah. I'm saying is, you know, there's a certain there's a certain part of the left that is almost like and and PETA is is one of those groups that I would I, I can't stand that group personally because they the Humane Society does a good job with protecting animals. PETA does a good job of making anyone who cares about animals look like moonback crazy weirdos and. You know, we well, want to rename fish to sea kittens because that's going to solve kittens. the problem. I, I know, what, I know what you're saying about PETA because I, I think that they have the same effect on people that ACT UP did. Right, and the reason I, I mentioned vegan is because I'm thinking about people like PETA who who are just so upsetting in the mm. way they portray themselves that it's just. Well, it's, I mean, it's left in a far there's, different There's way. a message yeah. that you want to try to get out there. Now, personally, it's one that, and I know that you shouldn't look away from it, mm-hmm. but when they put on those commercials where they have all these abused animals, I just lose it. I mean, I, I literally have to change a channel, which I know is not what you should do. I contribute very heavily to a lot of these right. groups, but I literally cannot watch that. Right. Now, can I watch mm-hmm. like, um, you know, 10 hours of Shoah. Yes, I can. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's, uh, I'm like, I'm like what Gordon Gecko said in Wall Street. He's a typical wasp, um, hates people, loves animals. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess that's probably, you know, my case too, yeah. is that. Well, that's the thing is. Too I, much monkey biomass, not enough tigers, not enough. Right. <laughs> whatever. I, right. I love animals and I love the good ethical treatment of animals. And I love right. to also eat animals. Um, well, I will well, say not, this. I will say this part some of it. Animals, I I like beef. I like chicken. I don't dig the pork. Mm-hmm. But I know um, people who are like vegan and vegetarian because they, for dietary reasons, don't eat meat, and that's totally great and totally fine. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. hey, if you don't want to ever be involved in the hurting of any animal, hey, that's fine. Go ahead and do that. But just showing right. horrible, violent things in pamphlets or in movies that some of my ex girlfriends have forced me to watch doesn't make me want to join your cause it makes no. me kind of angry because yeah right. i am against the abuse of those animals that's why i buy certain types of eggs from the farmer's market that are not part of the industrial complex eggs that sure. are cruel and harmful to animals right no, I understand. well i, I, I don't th- have to be i think the difference can be it. explained by a a story from uh, my life about 15 years ago we need a story from tor we almost need story uh, yeah. tour music at this point. Go. <laughs> I've, 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 I may have even told this one before, but uh, I was in a, an apartment and uh, under the front stoop, we had a family of raccoons living there. Yeah. And, uh, Call me bastards. The apartment uh, complex 
manager thought that they may, maybe be causing a problem with since all the tenants have to walk right over them. Right. Uh, so he set up some live traps and started trapping them so he could haul them out to the country and let them loose. Mm-hmm. You know, an ethical, humane treatment of, of these raccoons. Well, some animal rights guy who was probably living in the apartment buildings saw these traps trapping animals and he freaked out, you know, like they're trapping the animals. We must let the animals go free. So he like smashed up the traps and let the raccoons run out. And the, I know where this is going. And the, yeah. the, the, the raccoons like freaked out because of that and they ran into the street and got ran over. Yeah. So I, I mean, no, I it, know what you mean. Right. So I'm I just thought you were going to say the landlord put down poison to kill them all. <laughs> No, no, he just bought new traps. But uh, so there's there's different ways to go after the problem, and uh, you know you got to look at it at, at a um, said a, a scientific or or logical fashion, and you can't get necessarily overly emotional about something if it's going to steer you in the wrong way, which you know ends up the raccoon. Well, that's true. Being Again, cool. we're getting into like you know extremism or fundamentalism. Yeah, and yeah, that's generally always the wrong path now like for instance yeah. uh, you know a few years ago we had uh mrs sputnik uh really does a lot of work in the yard to have all these gardens and really looks very nice i personally don't have the patience for that shit it's all i can do to mow the lawn every week mm-hmm. but every week oh brutal well not every i mean <laughs> usually i do the white trash mow where i just do the front you know that kind of thing <laughs> But uh, we, we is this a front party in the back? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a lawn mowing. It is definitely a lawn mowing. The lawn mowing. Yeah, I mean, come on. Don't, tell me you haven't done that. Come on. So, oh, wow. so, anyways, there was a bunch of golfers, and they were just ripping shit out of the yard, and just kill all the golfers. She was kind of pretty upset and said, "Oh, you know, should we put out traps? Should we, you know, get some poison or whatever?" Actually, she wanted to do poison right away. I said, "No." If you kill Let's all the golfers, some... no one's going to come. That's a golfers. Why? You understand what you're saying, you furry little foreigner? <laughs> so It's a friend squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I got live traps. I caught all the golfers, and I released them on uh, a golf course. <laughs> awesome. No, I did. Because there's this golf course that always pissed me off. Nice one on the west side, I hope. Um, yes. The upper middle class. <laughs> upper lower middle I class. I won't say which one it is, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, so everyone was happy. But anyways, getting back to Orwell. Yeah, we're talking about this Orwell character. All right, so can we can we talk about he got involved in the Spanish Civil War? Can we talk about that yet, or is there more? No, oh, yeah, no, we you know, actually we can. Uh, out, and out of that experience came the book Homage to Catalonia, which I highly, mm-hmm. highly recommend. We've touched on the Spanish Civil War on a very, couple... very complex it, series it is. of events. It is, and and often ignored both historically and I think by most people. Yeah. I think it should be talked about a lot more. I wish it was taught more in history because it's a really great example of how tumultuous the times were and how there were factions of like the communists in Spain and, you know, the other factions working anarchists, communists (laughs) and Stalinists. Right. And and I think if people, if they got a little bit of background of who those groups are and Mm -hmm. then how that happened, I think they'd have a really good understanding of 
why people were willing to go along with the Nazis and why others were willing to then form different groups to fight the Nazis and, exactly. and how these bigger wars swirled into action the way they did because the it's Spanish, a microcosm. The Spanish Civil War, I think, is is always given short shrift because, you know, obviously it was right before the Second World War and that always gets more mm-hmm. focus. Mm-hmm. And I don't see it as just a preamble to World War Two. It was, in in fact... No, it's a microcosm. It, it is a situation all of its own brewing right? involving people who were very invested in doing something mm-hmm. in these different directions. It was It was a very in, – in, in a certain sense, it was kind of a world war because you had a lot of people who went there – Hemingway, mm-hmm. Orwell obviously and, and many others who – We had you know, people from the states that went over there to fight. Quite a few. The Abraham um, Lincoln Brigade. Yeah. So the Spanish Civil War is again a very complex series of events. I mean, you 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 have uh, Franco and the Nationalists uh, with the the Catholics, the Catholic Church, who were definitely trying to install a very fascist, very rigid government in Spain. And what's interesting is, is that even though you know Italy and Germany and Japan were smashed, the fascist government in Spain went on merrily for many decades after the second world war and you know of course the germans were involved and they they tested a lot of their equipment for blitzkrieg in spain Mm -hmm. there's a very famous uh, painting by picasso about the bombing of uh, the spanish town was completely obliterated Mm -hmm. the political parties themselves on the left were very uh varied uh so orwell was uh a member of uh poom which uh, the literal translation is uh, Partido Obero de Unificación Mar- Marxista. They were um, the Workers' Party of Marxist Unification. There was also the Anarcho-Syndicalist uh, Confederation and the United Socialist Party of Catalonia, which was a wing of the Spanish Communist Party, which was getting Soviet arms and aid and advisors. So, so <laughs> no, America was not the first to use advisors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is, is that, you know, all these, all these people were fighting and they, they had set up these, you know, whole towns and villages and it was, it worked beautifully. And Stalin became very concerned. I mean, you have to remember too, that, you know, in Russia at this time, it was the time of the great purges and anything that even vaguely smacked of you know trotskyism was very brutally repressed and in fact you know um it was only uh, 4 years after this that you know trotsky was assassinated i mean there's yeah there's there's germans on your doorstep but by all means let's uh let's kill trotsky in mexico right yeah so orwell was involved in the fighting and um he saw a lot of these principles that that he had uh, read about and believed in actually work. And then the Spanish Communist Party with the Soviet backing, you know, Stalin became concerned, well, is this the brand of of communism that we want internationally? No, this is smacks of Trotskyism. So it was they were branded as fascists. Mm-hmm. You know, even though they were anything but fascists and uh it was around this period of time that um when he returned to the front, that he was uh, shot in the throat by a sniper. Yeah, I can't imagine Ouch. that. And it, he describes it pretty well. But oh, beautifully. Yeah, the feeling of being being hit and, and thinking that it's over. And 
Well, Orwell was was very tall, <laughs> and uh, the trenches were not, and he was standing by the parapet, and he made a pretty good target. So mm-hmm. he caught one in the throat, which, when you combine with all the um, you know bronchial problems that he had had and so forth, and also Orwell was a very heavy smoker. He hand-rolled shag tobacco, which years ago I used to smoke a pipe and I did smoke shag tobacco and it's like, holy Christ, if you smoke that out of a cigarette, I mean that, <laughs> damn, you might as well just wrap your lips around a uh, exhaust pipe. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, and, and he uh, spent quite a bit of time recuperating from that. It had just barely missed the main artery right. in in his throat. Or and, we wouldn't be talking about him today. No, and his yeah. and, and so he he could he couldn't talk. He you know he was very. He, they actually used electrotherapy on him, <laughs> and he was you know declared unfit for service. Now, what electrotherapy would do for a throat wound? I have yeah, no, I don't know, but no you know, I think it, at that time it was like, hey, I'm the barber here. Let's, yeah, right. <laughs> let's try some leeches. Yeah, so, electricity so, was still kind of new. Yeah. By this time, the, the PUM was was uh, you know completely labeled as a Trotskyist organization, was outlawed and under attack. Uh, there were many of these that you know were were killed and you know hunted down. So yeah, so they were, went into hiding and they yeah. eventually had to escape the country, mm-hmm. which is just for someone like Orwell such an introduction to how these worms can turn, exactly, and how all of a sudden you're the enemy and you're know, routed out. So yeah. Uh, so homage to Candelodia came out in in 1938, and this I mean if if you read this book in Animal Farm in 1984 in that sequence I think it really kind of all unfolds quite well, and Orwell at this time you know saw firsthand what Stalinism really was, and this was not a common view by any means. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the in the left outside of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union was still seen as a shining example of what it all could be, and many people did not really understand what was going on. And he was a very early advocate and critic of how the left was being influenced by by these policies. So he, you know, returned to England. You know, wrote the book. Um, he he actually moved to the country. He acquired some goats, a rooster that he called Henry Ford, which I think is awesome. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and a poodle that he Is called... that the cock or is that the goat? <laughs> yeah, just the cock. <laughs> just the cock. <laughs> <laughs> and and a poodle that he called Marx, <laughs> which is I saw a huge green cat once that was called Chairman Meow. <laughs> and you saw a picture of it kind of looked like those posters of Mao. Wow. It was <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> So, uh, you know, Orwell was married by this time, and uh, when World War II came around, uh, he, you know, obviously was not in any physical condition to participate in the war, but he was involved in what they call the Home Guard. The Home Guard, yes. And he saw that, as many other people did in the Home Guard, as kind of possibly a revolutionary group that that might affect some real change in England. Because you have to remember, too, among the upper classes, not just Edward VII, there was a feeling that perhaps that Herr Hitler has a point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, there there was already a move against English imperialism and colonialism to a more, you know, reasoned approach to, well, you know, maybe we can just take care of ourselves and mm-hmm. not worry about Yeah, but that's owning the... other countries. 
And that's the quote that I'm, I'm always thinking about, about him joining the Home Guard and about him being a you know, soldier for his beliefs, is that whole, um, the quote about pacifism, where he said that pacifism is objectively pro-fascist. Mm-hmm. And he said, this, this is elementary common sense. If you hamper the war effort of one side, you automatically help out that of the other. Nor is there any real way of remaining outside such a war as the present one. In practice, he that is not with me is against me. And and this is where he was this kind of idealistic type of democratic socialist where he mm-hmm. was willing to take up arms and willing to scold people who were unwilling to take up arms because of their religious or political beliefs. And he was right. saying, look, if you're not with me, you're against me at this they're gonna time. They're going to just roll right over you. Yeah, they're going to roll over you and you will have helped them by not right. fighting them. And And I think that's where he gets a lot of his people who view him as someone who is a little more to the right mm-hmm. because he was willing to fight, you know. Well, and he was also... Yeah. I um, mean, that that quote is almost... It's very similar to, what was it, a George W. Bush quote after 9-11? You know, with, with me, with you're the, against me. Uh, I can't like get fooled yeah. in. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Strategery. Strategery. And he was uh, definitely one of the more vocal critics of the non-aggression pact uh, between <laughs> Germany and Russia, you know, saying, look, if you think this is really anything other than red fascism... Why are these two working together, just mm-hmm. splitting up countries? You know, because they're. If you read Mein Kampf, it yeah. says pretty clearly, "Yep, we want to have Russia as breathing room, breathing space." Mm-hmm. Lebensraum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, in fact, I think uh, Stalin uh, read a Russian translation of Mein Kampf, and as usually, he always underlined everything in blue pencil. And he even underlined that he saw that, yet he was still hugely shocked when Hitler invaded. So I, I don't know. I don't know if Stalin was that shocked, but I think he. Oh no, he in fact was. I mean, he literally really? didn't know what to do, and that's why the Germans made such huge advances, almost destroyed the Russian air force, mm-hmm. and you know made. I mean, the, the, the yeah. thing the thing was is in any invasion of Russia, which Napoleon found out, you're going to overreach your supply lines really quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. So, anyways, um, well, you know, during the war effort, his his wife Eileen worked in the censorship department in London. Yeah, which is hilarious when you think of it. <laughs> yeah, the Ministry of Information. <laughs> yeah, the Ministry wow. of Information. But he did. Maybe he that's did, where he got it, the idea. Well, huh? he did Ministry very of Truth. similar yeah. similar yeah. work himself because yes, yes, not only was he a journalist, but eventually he started working for the propaganda department, the BBC, the BBC, <laughs> Room One Hundred One, <laughs> Room One Hundred One. <laughs> that's right. I, I think that wasn't that a meeting room, or was that I, that was a room in his life? Yes, and it had some significance. It did. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I've heard it in two different stories, and I'm not willing to say which one I think is right at this point. He he wrote an essay uh, that that is still you know very much read today. Can socialists be happy? You know, I mean, it's like oh, they're just constant complainers, and it's never. And it's like no, he lays it out. I think very (laughs) well. So it's it's an essay, a short essay that I think uh, definitely deserves to be read. Um, this this was after he uh, left the BBC, <laughs> but yeah, he 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 did leave. I mean, he did feel like he was a cog in a wheel there, and I think he described mm-hmm. it as a, being a type of an orange constantly under the foot of a boot or something like that. Right. So he understood that what he was doing was working in part of a fascist propaganda machine to some degree, and and this is where he f- started formulating the ideas 
of Animal mm-hmm. Farm. And this is not to say that England itself was fascist. I'm saying that <clears throat> countries have to operate in these ways in order to fight these larger battles when you're at war with these different countries. Right. But yeah. I think, or at least they think they do. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and, and he felt that he did, and that's why he got involved, but eventually got worn out by it. But sure. <clears throat> you, when he wrote Animal Farm, he was specifically pointing out the efficiency, the effectiveness, and the 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 levels and depths that the Stalinist government was willing to go to. Right. Uh, but you can look at it in a larger sense too. Right. Is how how every revolution throughout history has always inevitably been betrayed from within. And when I say betrayed, it's not like okay, look for all the counter revolutionaries. Right. But I'm just <laughs> saying simply that that no, it's. Whatever it started out as, it morphs fairly quickly. But what I'm saying is a larger point. Like when he is working for a propaganda machine in England, he's able to understand that there's propaganda machines in Russia churning out things against him. And he's able to understand how these cogs are all working Mm -hmm. against each other in such synchronicity. But I think he saw far nefarious depths at work in Stalinist Russia and Right. In my historical learning, I think he's definitely correct. <laughs> and, oh, yes. I mean, to be uh, sure, yeah. like, with with any of these totalitarian governments, that they all have some degree of it. And that if you cut one head off the Hydra, you still have, you know, that many right. more to deal with. And it's just amazing that he's able to pull together Animal Farm in such a way that, that he really gets to the heart. I, I wonder how he knew to the depth that he knew what was going on in Soviet Russia, because this was the thing that was always so hard during the Cold War and during World War II to, mm-hmm. to really understand who these Russians really were. But he had some experience with communists in the Spanish-American War. Oh, to be and sure. And he had an idea of what was going on there. And then he could see the prism coming at him of what Stalin is proclaiming uh, and how different it is from what Lenin was saying and how the Trotskyites or the Bukharins of the Communist Party were portraying how communism would be the shining path that would right. you know, lead them the shining path down, yes. down a better better road. So anyway, this was great experience for him and that I think led directly to Animal Farm. So in 1944, he was ready to publish Animal Farm, which was originally called Animal Farm, A Fairy a Tale. A fairy tale. Which, you know, people were concerned about because they said, oh, kids will read it. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, fine. <laughs> They'll probably just see it as a bunch of talking pigs and won't think yeah. of anything else other than that. Yeah. Babe, pig in the city. <laughs> right. <laughs> of um, doom. It was interesting at this period of time in, in June of that year, a V-1 bomb landed on his uh, home, destroyed his home, and he had to scramble around in all the wreckage and rubble to try to collect all of his books and haul wow. them away in a wheelbarrow. Can you imagine? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Jesus. <laughs> He's like one of these people that, and then huh. and then after that, um, his publisher d- d- didn't want did not want to publish Animal Farm. Well, this is this is kind of confusing. Um, if if you look into it and you read a little more about that, um, the publisher was persuaded by Peter Smollett, who. Who's at the Ministry of Information? The Ministry of Information or <laughs> Mini Info. Uh, and uh he was uh actually identified as a Soviet agent. Right. So I mean wow. it, I mean so, th- so it's like every my God, it's it's just sort of everywhere at yeah, this point. Yeah, yeah. There's some really yeah. crazy stuff going on there. Very much um, so. Uh-huh. And because it's definitely an anti communist tract, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um Animal Farm is not that long of a book, really. 
you no, could but sit it's, down and read it. It's so interesting. In fact, what what I thought was interesting was I want to say it was about five years ago they mm-hmm. actually did a live action. 1999. Yeah, that oh, was... Oh, it was in 1999, so it was, yeah. okay, that far back. That was John Farm. Stevenson. That was a guy from the Jim Henson troupe that did that one. That's right. Yeah, this, yeah. Was, this was on TV. This wasn't a movie version. It starred uh, now, the only... Kelsey Grammer and Patrick Stewart. Oh, my God. Peter Ustinov. Yeah. There's yeah. names yeah. upon names of great actors in that. But let's, yeah. just, let's just back up, because if you're talking about adaptations... There's a 1954 animated adaptation. Now, this one was, unbeknownst to the producers, funded by the CIA. Right. Wow. As an anti-communist tract, basically. (laughs) So not only do you have the Soviets trying to hold it back, you've got the Americans trying to get it out there. (laughs) Hey, let's make it animated. How about a pinball machine? (laughs) Whatever we need to do. Ministry of Truth, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and I haven't seen the 1954 animation. I, I wish I could, but... I don't know. Um, I did see the 1999 TV movie, uh, which I thought was brilliantly done. It was it was very beautifully done. Yeah, and I mean it mm-hmm. it walks you through the book. It's it's such a good. Well, it's it's like uh, 1984. Mm-hmm. There was a British version done in the 50s, which is okay. Mm-hmm. But of course, the one with John Hurt and Richard Burton was just. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, let's let's get to that in a minute. Of let's, course, of let's course. Stay with Animal but Farm. But with with Animal Farm, I think I think it's one of those stories. I always found one of the more tragic characters to be Boxer the horse. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, it's yeah. like Napoleon is always right, and I will work harder. And it's oh jeez. Yeah, and I think Boxer was um, Boxer was Paul Schofield. Now, oh, I think that was Paul Schofield's last appearance in film in really? any way. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So. Well, that uh, Rich, uh, Richard Burton, that was his last uh, movie appearance in 1984. And he actually said that that was his favorite role in all of the movies he had done was being O'Brien. Yeah. And yeah. Oh. Yep. And, and he, that wasn't he wasn't first choice. They were really no. worried about having him. in. Yes. That. Yes. But I want to talk about Animal Farm. Alrighty then. Patrick Stewart. Oh. Our farm is now truly Animal Farm. Yeah. Was Napoleon. From now on, a special committee of pigs will decide all aspects of the farm. No! <laughs> Which was fabulous. Fabulous. <laughs> old Major was really great as yeah. well. The voice of Old Major. That was Peter Ustinov. Yes. Man is our enemy. Remove man and we will become free and Equal! Free and equal! I mean, who else oh, do you wow. want to be on high telling everyone in the <laughs> I barn had a dream. the revolution? <laughs> I've read a lot of socialist realism. I've studied a lot of, you know, poli-sci and politics. And for anyone, just a regular person out there, Animal Farm is a wonderful starting point to understand yes. totalitarianism, fascism, and how these things happen mm-hmm. in a very, in a fairy tale. In yes. a fairy tale. It's really a great book. And... These adaptations are great as well, but they they do, in my opinion, kind of just belittle the the actual written word. If you can handle reading a book, a small book, (laughs) pick up Animal Farm and read it. The films are not exact to the book. No, they're not exact. No, but I I think the 1999 film adds a little addendum that throws on, hey, and then the Cold War happened and all this shit turned to shit. And right. Animal Farm, the book, ends in the middle of the shit when he didn't know what was going to happen no, you didn't. at the in time fact, that this started. Exactly. And just the pigs started looking mm-hmm. like the men and the men started looking like the pigs. That's kind of where it ended for right. him and for the book. Um, but beyond that, there's some addendums in the first one. But 
in the 1999 film, but I did truly enjoy it. It took me about 15 minutes to kind of turn and put up with some of the puppetry and things going on in that film. But in the storyline, I thought they were very honest and did a really great job of showing how horses like Boxer and the mm. chickens and and how they go along to get along and how you deal with the pigs and, and how you ratchet up propaganda and how right. your story becomes more and more different until all animals are created equal, except some animals are more equal. Exactly. I mean, that's probably the most outstanding quote from that book, and, and it yeah. can be used in so many ways. Yeah. And that's why Orwell will always be relevant, and I think is is very relevant <laughs> oh, <yeah>. now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely. There, This will not be irrelevant, and, and this is so beautiful, and it, it is such a great allegory. It's such a great story to you can apply this in so many different ways and oh, yeah. and to the to the nazis and the jews to all the different atrocities that have been committed by totalitarian any states. upper group any lower group mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. and it always amazed me like in through animal farm how napoleon would make a statement and it would and it was kind of in some ways a precursor to uh 1984's double think the principle mm -hmm. of double mm -hmm. think mm -hmm where Napoleon would say something and it was in complete opposition to what he had just said. And then this other pig would come in and explain, well, what Napoleon meant was, and then all the animals <laughs> would say, you know, I remembered being different yet. I feel comfortable with your right. explanation. <laughs> did, did we say that pigs wouldn't sleep in beds? No, we wouldn't in beds with sheep. Isn't hay just a bed of sorts? We'll sleep in a bed. We just won't use sheets. God, it was so oh. wonderfully the story kept changing. Uh, love it, love it, love it. And yeah. if you studied enough of what Stalin actually did do and oh. the propaganda films that were created, I'm under Stalin, under Lenin. I mean, this is the the regime was corrupted originally, but right. the goal was further corrupted. And you had these characters in Animal Farm that purely like Snowball is a clear reference to Trotsky. Oh, it, yeah, and and and. It's awesome because you see this character of Snowball as a Trotsky character. Mm -hmm. I prefer Bukharin sometimes, but the way he ran <laughs> off to Mexico. I would as well. It's definitely Trotsky. But <laughs> I love the Snowball character and how they were just overwhelmed by Napoleon and the apropoly named Squealer. Right. You know, and, and how the Squealer. pigs took over the farm and how, how the always, sheep followed along. Was the one yeah, that would yeah, always yeah. explain things? Yeah, Squealer with his monocle would always... Yeah. <laughs> It's so beautiful, and and the fact that the sheep were always going along with the party yeah, line. Two, two, four legs, two legs bad, four legs good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Animal Farm is is a really wonderful work, and he got a lot of renown for that. That that yeah. got a lot of recognition. That really put him on the map and allowed him. Yes, to, it did. Allowed him to get the funding mm -hmm. he needed to I, move forward with 1984. I think a lot of his books uh, previous to that had in essays and literary criticism. Were probably read by a fairly select group, and it mm -hmm. was it was pretty much seen as you know essays about English culture or, or politics. But Animal Farm definitely was this one that put him on the world. Yeah, story. I get excited just thinking about it, just talking about it. It's a really, really great work. It's, it's a great story. It's one of those books mm -hmm. that, and that's the thing that I enjoy so much about Orwell is that you can read his books at any at any point in your life and. It just opens up something for you. Right. Uh, it's it's a way of looking at the world in a much more critical, realistic, pragmatic fashion. Right. That you might be more critical about the things that you care about the most, and it in in, in blind loyalty and following along with some emotional knee jerk reaction. 
and I'm looking at you, Tea Party. <laughs> <laughs> you can get critical about yourself too. You can, absolutely. You can see your blind spots sometimes reading something like this. Uh, yes, where you're allowed to go. You know, maybe. I should be thinking a little more deeply about my choices <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> rather than just accepting what someone's feeding me day in and day out or right. not feeding me and telling me that I should work more. <laughs> Think about it critically. And if you find that, okay, I'm being fed a load of bullshit, then examine that as well. Mm -hmm. In fact, just keep looking because you're in, in the time that Orwell wrote these books, there wasn't near the level and sophistication of mass communication there is now. Mm -hmm. Now you're literally bombarded by everything. And there's nothing that pisses me off more than two-second search engine experts. Mm -hmm. I mean, that it's just like, wow, you, you, you just you looked it up, didn't you? And you just skimmed it. Well, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and the white horse you rode into town on. I think that we can, we can keep moving unless you have more to say about Animal Farm. Um, Tor's over here looking with consternation. No, I I I have a, some transition stuff, uh, but, but between Animal Farm and 1984. Let's do that because what I point. what I really think happened with Animal Farm to 1984 is he had a fairy tale and then he just made it all too fucking real with 1984. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I mean, Tor, what yeah. happened in between? Yeah. <laughs> well, between uh, Animal Farm. And 1984, he wrote an essay called Why I Write. I love that essay. Yes. That yes. is a great essay. So he, he says everybody that writes is motivated by four things. Some things, it's different for every writer, so some are motivated more by one than number three. Sheer egoism. Yeah, so <laughs> sheer egoism is number one. <laughs> number two is uh, aesthetic enthusiasm. And number three is historical impulse. And number four is political purpose. Yeah. So he, he goes on and talks about his writing and, and how aesthetic enthusiasm. There's a time in his life where he really tried to get fancy words and, and try to really be real descriptive of everything. And just Yeah, and when you read that part, you're like, wow, he really has digested a lot of really great literature and he's able to yeah. he's able to just pump it out. And and this mm -hmm. made me really think about him in a different light yeah. where most of his novels are quite short. And, you know, when you read some of these greater novels by like, say Dostoevsky or those kind of people, yes. you know mm -hmm. that they're really cranking out these lyrical volumes. And when yeah. you look at someone like Orwell, you think, Oh, he's succinct. He's to the point. And then you read why I write and, and you see that he, he's capable of far more and yeah. he understands far deeper how he could be portraying things and burying symbolism and, you know, just right. words for the beauty of words and and just using language to its fullest ability. I gained a lot of respect for him reading that. Oh, that yeah. Essay. Yeah. It's it's a great essay. And he, he kind of goes on to say that, uh, you know, in his past, he, he maybe was more concentrated with the, the flowery words and the descriptive and all that. And but he thinks in his previous words where he was really lacking was the political mm -hmm. uh, aspect of it, and he thought whatever he writes in the future will probably have more of a political, you know, <laughs> yeah. edge yes, to they, it. You know, it's kind of it's kind of where he had already been heading, but he just sort of yeah. like sharpened that point to a fine edge. Yeah, yeah, and he is, thought he would write you know a bit more to the point, not as flowery. And be more political. Yeah, but don't let him fool you because it is yeah. flowery. 
and and there are yeah, the, the I mean, symbolism it's, in 1984 it's is good rich. Ri- yeah, it's yeah. it's good he, writing. No, it's just succinct. It's just yeah. ratcheted down oh. to the bare necessities. 1984, yeah. and, and let's just move on to 1984. If, yeah, if you would. So it was, of course, it was it was you know published in 1948. You know, and just flip the numbers. Mm-hmm. Yep. And well, you know, that's really interesting the, because it took him several years to write it. Right. When he yeah. was originally writing it, it was going to be, you know, 1940, it was going to be called 1980. Right. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I'm 42, uh, 1982. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> right. done yet. Yeah. Uh, 1984. <laughs> and I can remember in, in yeah. the year 1984, people kept saying, well, you know, how close are we to Orwell's? It's like, well, it doesn't happen exactly that way and and i think in uh-huh. some, well, that's that's what's crazy is because yeah with with the department of information the ministry of truth yeah. you know it, uh-huh. it could be nine it could be like 2087 mm-hmm. who knows what the hell year it is no one's gonna know what year it is it's 1984 because the the government tells you big brother tells you it can be but, but the thing is, you want it the, to be the, the, there's little bits of 1984 you know in throughout the whole 20th and 21st century, right. probably. Yeah. Because the main concepts are two plus two does equal five, and I love Big Brother. So it doesn't really matter what the reality of it is. It doesn't matter what the year is. It doesn't yeah. matter what the methods are used. And and this is a thing that always bothered me about critics. Well, not critics or, or just, you know, people talking about 1984 as they always, oh, it's dystopian. You know, which I was just like, well... <laughs> to, to me, in a certain way, that yeah. that just gives it very short shrift because it's, it's not... Yeah. It's it's as much an allegory as Animal Farm is. It's saying, look, here's what it can become and here's why. And so you just take this concept and you, you stretch it out as far as you can. But whatever the methods that are used, it works the same way. It may not right. work exactly line for line, but I'll tell you, the best part of 1984 for me is, of course, when uh, Winston Smith... Uh, finally sits down and reads a copy of the the theory and practice of oligarchical collectivism <laughs> by Emmanuel Goldstein. Mm-hmm. And I've met him; he's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> and and he, he he explains the concepts of war is peace, ignorance is strength, freedom is slavery, and it's just so it's like this book within a book, but it is so razor sharp. It it just grabs you line by line, word by word, and just lays it out. How, yes, whatever you think is probably the right way to go, no, 2 plus 2 equals 5, I love Big Brother. Maybe you need Room 101 to get there. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need all your teeth smashed out. Maybe you need to have the well, rats applied to your face, but... Yeah. Well, I mean... and. and... For for those of you who don't know 1984, we're not spoiling and, anything. And honestly, you. if you don't, why the fuck don't you? Well, you could be yeah. 13, you could be 14, you could be 15, and you could be 20. I was, I was 13 when I read it, so get out there. Get a copy of this book. <laughs> well, don't be mad at them. That's not I'm not, I'm not being mad. More, I'm being, I'm being, you, you I'm catch being, more flies with honey. I mean, I'm being enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> I have my enthusiasms. My 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 point is j- just a brief explanation. So in this culture, in this Oceania where these people live, right. you've got your your top five percent, and then they're the right. inners, the inner party. Then you've got the outer party, these group of like the top fifteen percent, <laughs> and then of course you have the proles. Then you have the proles, the proletariat. <laughs> that's everyone else. Everybody, that's us, right? That's right. And so you've got the Koch brothers, and then you've got the Obama presidential Senate people, and then you have us, everybody else, yeah, basically. Right. So it it's a three ring really, government. It's just a three ring circus. <laughs> and and what happens is the the inner party has uh, two way televisions throughout the society 
but mainly they just use it on the outer party because the proles, no one cares what the proles are doing. If you give the proles enough drugs and alcohol, they'll entertain themselves and just do their jobs. The outers are the ones who control the proles, so they have these two-way televisions to keep an eye on them and find out if they're being subversive you, you in know, some Victor, way. You know, Victor, I think you got it wrong <laughs> as far as comparing to current society. Mm-hmm. Yes, Koch brothers are the inners. Mm-hmm. Outers, Fox News. Because they're <laughs> oh, that's scary. controlling the proles. That's even more scary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I see yeah. what you're saying, yeah. and I'm not saying you're wrong. Well, I say that <laughs> CNN is also part of the outers that control the sure the polls yeah. in a different way. It's just give them cake. Yeah. Um, so, so the whole society is kept in check by this monitoring of the outers to make sure the outers are doing their job, and so that's why outers are constantly under surveillance. So it's a surveillance culture. And then you've got the proles yep. out there, and when an outer gets out of line, like the case of Winston Smith, you end up with. Mm-hmm. consequences and situations and right. re-education by the we ministry of love it's not necessary <laughs> to to kill you it's just necessary to change the way you see the world right right there was actually a, a star trek tng next generation <laughs> and not uh, tos <laughs> no not tos i'm okay. going i'm going tng okay. and it was done by patrick stewart and it was written by patrick stewart and he insisted on doing it because he's very involved in, you know, torture around the world. And there's <laughs> he's running around torturing people. No, <laughs> that dick. I used to like him. You ruined him for me. Suck, Picard. <laughs> yeah, kind of bald, the wire glasses. <laughs> but in any case, uh, there w- there was this episode where he's being interrogated by this Cardassian, and oh, Kim I Cardassian. Think I <laughs> know. <laughs> oh my god! I never even thought of that until you said that. Oh fuck. That's just like ruined now. Uh, TNG predates. I know. I know. I know. The Spoonheads. You know who I'm talking about. Yes, I know. Okay. So, um, Spoonheads, Lizard Necks. Anyways, um, and I believe his interrogator was played by David Warner, who has got, you know, quite a past in Star Trek's of all movies. And uh, was he in Tron? David? Yes. Yeah. Yes, he was. Um, oh, he was the bad guy, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, he was. So, yeah. in any case, uh, the whole thing is is uh, Picard is being tortured, and he has to see that there's five right, lights right. instead of four. Right. And yeah. 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 I remember that one. And there's a scene at the end where he <laughs> he admits to you know his first officer is like, at the end, I. I think I saw five lights, you know, and that's oh, yeah. like the worst aspect of it is that, no, you can yeah. be changed. That yeah. that was one of the top episodes of that oh, series. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That and the whistle one. I <laughs> love the whistle one. Episode. I think that was the inner light. Yeah, yeah. we've gone into that before. That's but... awesome. <laughs> All right, let's get back to 1984. So the, the book, did it was well-received. Yes. It's coined terms Orwellian, basically. Orwellian. Oh, I mean, that's, I mean, there's so <laughs> yeah. many things, you know, phrases, and yeah, yeah, just the whole concept of something being Orwellian. I mean, this whole new speak that he created as part yeah. of the novel. Double think. Double think. These, these, the, having the government constrict language with its dictionaries by reducing the language into such a minuscule language that you can't even form the thoughts that would allow you to. Well, foment revolution against the government. <laughs> I mean, it's amazingly a powerful government. What is texting and tweeting if not newspeak? 
Yeah. You know, I mean, really. <laughs> LOL. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you four. Yeah. Eat me. <laughs> so I got to say that I did in in preparation for this podcast, and, and I, I wanted to revisit the 1984 film. Yes. Uh, starring John Hurt. Yes. And the absolutely beautiful Susanna Hamilton. Uh, who plays Julia in that film? Yes, uh, you know the older film. Those guys were just too old to be the characters. The nineteen fifty six film was it? I yeah. It, it just didn't. Of it was stilted. It was nineteen fifty six. There is not the best adaptation of nineteen eighty four is the nineteen eighty four version. It was filmed in nineteen eighty four, and whenever they're referencing what year date it is in nineteen eighty four, yeah. it was actually that date in nineteen eighty four, which is kind of cool. But John Hurt is the perfect uh, Winston Smith. He was. And, and mm-hmm. what's interesting about the movie is that it was supposed to be 1984, yet everything, including the, 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 the trains and the look and everything, was completely like 40s England. Right, right. You know? Wow. But did you guys know that so, Mark Hamill was supposed to be Winston Smith before oh, John Hurt? Oh, Wow. No, I'm just kidding. I made that up. Oh, <laughs> oh you suck. Yeah. <laughs> I was just hey, messing around with you. What, did, did this movie come out in, in, in 1984? Ben. Uncle Owen. Yeah? It's R2 unit has a bad motivator. Look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to work on the condensers. <laughs> Shut up. But I assume the movie came out in 1984? Yeah. Well, yeah. that was when it was filmed. Yeah. Yeah. It but must have come out in late 1984. Yeah. Because that's the good marketing. I mean, yeah. soundtrack by the Eurythmics. Yeah, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't originally supposed to be the Eurythmics. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be. They had a guy do the soundtrack, but uh, it was Branson. It was um, Virgin Records mm-hmm. that wanted a pop band. We want the latest top band to they bring in. They did a good job the, on it. You know, I thought they did a great job because yeah. it, it yeah. made it weirder than all other films produced at the time. Mm-hmm. The director was pissed. Uh, he was absolutely furious. He had no idea that someone else was going to do it. Apparently, they he originally went to David Bowie, and they wanted Bowie to do the soundtrack because he had made some homages to 1984. That probably would have been in, good too. In Diamond yeah. Dogs, yeah. And uh, so then it was it was like, well, he wanted too much money. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> honestly, <there> if <laughs> I were David Bowie, yeah, I'd want some money to do the soundtrack for the 1984 film. Sure. So yeah. they went, oh, well, get the Eurythmics to do it. <laughs> So, so they yeah. did, and I love the Eurythmics. I think they're fantastic. So big fan of the Eurythmics here. I actually, one of the things I really like most about the Eurythmics is when Boris Grabenshikov came to America mm-hmm. and did his first album, I think it was called Radio Silence, they were his band. They did all the background stuff. They worked with him hard. Dave Stewart and those guys backed him up and did a really wonderful, beautiful album. Very cool. And it completely tanked in the American charts. And he promptly went back to Russia. <laughs> and he's a, he's a lead singer, a guitar player from a band Aquarium. And I love the guy. I love his music. I love that album, Radio Silence. I think it's wonderful. And I'm really sorry it didn't take off in some way because mm-hmm. I thought they did a really good job with him. So anyway... That's just me and, and my longing, but I love the Eurythmics, and I thought it fit that weird narrative, the weird there's, stuff going on. There's a song, I mean, there's a couple songs in there, like Room 101 and Double Plus Good, mm-hmm. which I thought just <laughs> hammered it, you know? It's like that electronics art uh, soundtrack, like in hardware, had this weird electronica. Right. So- <laughs> it, it made it stand out from contemporary films, and yes. I loved it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, Eurythmics mm-hmm. thing was great. The director was pissed. Apparently, there's a version released with the original orchestral soundtrack i'd almost like to see that i'd be curious to see what that is but it would be different for me 
yeah. to, to see that. That's true. But I thought this film was a wonderful adaptation. You had John Hurt in the lead role. And I think I I think I accidentally said that he was in um Alien in the last podcast. We were talking about I think it was William Hurt. Wasn't William Hurt the guy in Alien who had the, the No, that was John Hurt. No. Chest thingy. No, yeah. He was hmm. like he he had the thing, you know, attach itself to his face, it fell off. He want he was really hungry, and then he's sitting in the cafeteria and it's like, oh <laughs> No, that was John Hurt. And what's interesting too, and I we probably mentioned this in, in a previous podcast, but what was uh, fascinating about John Hurt is he plays Winston Smith in nineteen eighty four, but then plays the uh, fascist leader in Viva Vendetta. Right, right. Which oh, is okay. fantastic. Yeah. And you Tori, you mentioned uh, you know, Orwell's uh, rules for writing. Yeah. He also had uh, some that I, I he had six rules for writers in an essay he wrote called Politics in the English Language, which I think are good. Never use a metaphor, simile or other figure of speech, which which you are used to seeing in print. Never use a long word where a short one will do. If it is possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Never use the passive where you can use the active. Never use a foreign phrase, scientific word or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. And then, of course, the last one, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought of it. I know why I mentioned it Those in the last episode. Rules. Yeah. I accidentally said he was in the Lost in Space movie. It was William Hurt that was in the Lost William in Space Hurt movie. William Hurt was in the Lost he in Space movie. He played John yeah. Robinson in the right. Lost in Space movie. So, yeah, I think I got I got yeah. way late on that. And Joey was in that, too. Mm-hmm. Now, Joey. <laughs> <laughs> Joey. Joey from Friends. And he was a good, good uh, Don. Uh <laughs> But, you know, what I do want to mention about John Hurt is he was also the voice of Hazel in uh, Watership Down. This was the Richard... Oh, my God. That's going back away. Richard... Yeah, 1970s Richard... Yeah. Anyway, uh, the novel that was turned into an animated film. And the reason I mention this is it's kind of dystopian, what John Hurt was already doing in the late 70s in Watership Down. But then I got to tell you, he was also the voice of one of the dogs... A year later, because Watership Down did okay in the film The Plague Dogs. Oh my God! So, the most people don't really know The Plague Dogs, but I think very few of us have seen the American cut of this. It's like an eighty-three minute film. Mm-hmm. I think you've seen it, mm-hmm. Sputnik. I've seen it, and uh, maybe three people in Europe. There's a hundred and two. <laughs> there's a hundred and two minute version of this film that exists. Uh, I think it was distributed in on VHS in Australia. So if you're an Australian listener, you might have this. I'd love to see it. But it's it's like a extended version because they thought this film was too horrible in its original length to release in America. So they cut it out to make it more Disney nice. Often happens. And so you, you have know, this eighty five minutes. Something light like Song of the yeah, South. Let's let's make it light. Plague Dogs is an animated film that is just freaking dark about two dogs that escape from a research facility animal testing and you kind of find out that they might have the plague they might not but regardless the army's trying to hunt these dogs down right. and kill them and you're like pulling for the dogs <laughs> yeah. the whole time this is like this is like the fox and the hound being yeah. chased by commandos you know that's, that's basically right. what it is and john hurt was the voice of that uh one of the dogs being chased and he great 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 underrated cult animated film that deserves a lot more credit than it got but man i got to say i loved julia in that film yeah. Uh, and as part of wearing the red sash of the anti-sex league, the red sash of the anti-sex league, <laughs> they didn't really explicitly get into that too much in the movie. Not really. No. But hey, you can't blame them. 
But you had Richard Burton. I really liked Richard in his Burton last in, that, movie in his role, last movie role, which he he said that of of anything he's ever done, that he, he just and that was a very different point in his life too. And you could tell that that his performance was so much more focused. Mm-hmm. If you want a vision of the future, Winston, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. You know, he wasn't. You know, it's not like mm-hmm. Cleopatra or Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and yeah, and it was it was just a really really great great adaptation oh, i, I thought so, they yeah. had the starkness they hit that proletariat worker thing really well mm-hmm. and, and just the look and feel of it i mean you could really get the sense of the, the, so many key parts of that movies and books can often be just light years apart but i think mm-hmm. this one i i gotta believe that if orwell had seen this movie he'd say And after after watching it again recently, you've got to think that people, if they see it now, you don't have to see 1984 as 1984 because like the first line of the novel talks about how it was April the 4th and the clocks had all just struck struck 13. 13. I mean, the whole point of this is we don't know what time it is. We don't know what day it is. We don't know what month it is. We don't really know what year it is because Big Brother tells us different things from day to day. Mm -hmm. It could be anytime we're not quite sure That's except right. for we right. know we're maybe this year's old and we're piecing together what we might know from our childhood That's and how right. the story had changed over the years and this is exactly how things happened in stalinist russia this is exactly the way that the texas school books are created i mean right. they're yeah. changed year by year <laughs> memory is an active process no matter what you yeah. saw no matter how directly you saw something as time goes on, you add and subtract things to it. Right. right. And as and, Big and, Brother changes the story from the top down. And it's right. being actively distorted, yeah. Fox, Fox News. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. I, I mean, it's active distortion by, yeah, it was hard, yeah. Not, to, it was hard not to think about America. Rupert Murdoch. When I'm, yeah, watching, yeah. when I'm watching this. But you know, great film. We could, we could probably easily do another hour on um, Orwell's political views and certainly how... You know, you could see him as being somewhat conflicted in both his religious and his political views. But I think this probably sums it up best. The special branch, which, you know, of course, is, you know, part of of British intelligence, had a file on Orwell for for over 20 years of his life. When it was published by the National Archives, one investigator said that Orwell had advanced communist views and several of his Indian friends say that he had often seen him at communist meetings. Whereas MI5... The other other British intelligence department uh, noted that it is evident from his recent writings, The Lion and the Unicorn, and his contribution to a colonist's symposium on the betrayal of the left, that he does not hold with the Communist Party nor with them. Well, you know <laughs> with him, I should say. And, and so, I mean, it, even people who had been watching him for years couldn't figure out quite what he was about he created yeah. lists of communist sympathizers that as an editor, he would not want people to promote. Mm-hmm. And he was it found out later on he was right. Yeah. They were communist sympathizers and and this guy was hardcore. He was like, you know, what communist what communism is doing right now mm-hmm. is not going to be to the benefit of the community. Yeah. So these communist sympathizers and, need and re- to not be given a lot of attention and he he distributed these lists to people and when the lists got their when people got their hands on the list they found out that yeah not only was he being actively working against communism he was he was right <laughs> the people right. that, that were communist uh-huh. sympathizers and, and he was people like pretty much specifically after the the stalinism mm-hmm. angle of it yeah yeah and and this was 1940s so i mean yeah 
it was a volatile time. And mm-hmm. being a communist sympathizer in the 20s meant something different than in the 30s, than in the 40s. Right. I mean, it mm-hmm. became pretty clear as the 20s rolled on that that communism was not what communism was. But, behind but I don't the think Ryan, that was I, evident outside yeah. of the Soviet Union this, this for quite some time This is something that. that we've said over and over. Yeah. That it, it, it did take until the 40s, until people actually really understood that, wow, Stalin is going a different direction than Lenin. Mm-hmm. And then they realized, oh, Lenin was going his own direction in the first place anyway, right. but that That's was true. different. The other thing I'd yeah. say is that when he was working on this on the Isle of Jura, he had to, because of the tuberculosis, he had to go to an island to write. He was prescribed this kind of bed rest. He had this remote farmhouse on an island that he would right. go to to write, and it's, it seems so romantic to me. The, the it does. It's pictures of it. It looks very isolated, but probably yeah. what you need to do to sit mm-hmm. down and write something like yeah. that. It's kind of horrible, but apparently his wife used the time to get a hysterectomy and, and yeah. do it without his knowledge or whatever because she thought it'd be a quick thing she wouldn't have to worry about it basically and then she died under anesthesia which which was not uncommon then yeah sad and so and you know he had been fighting you know illness his entire life and finally succumbed in 1950 so he finally had money though and he was he was trying to share it with someone like hey will you marry me i'll you can inherit my fortune and you can be right and he did find a woman to marry him basically but towards his deathbed it was kind of sad it is sad but you know if if you haven't uh read any orwell or if you have your own views on orwell please let us know at feedback at tankriot.com and and uh if you haven't picked up any Orwell, or if there's some books that we mentioned that you haven't read, by all means, pick it up mm. or download it or do whatever you have to do to read it, because I think you'd really enjoy it. And honestly, I think Orwell's writings probably strike a very common thread with a lot of our podcasts, which is just keep looking at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't think you've got the right answer Look for just the facts. now. Keep digging. Keep right. looking. Yeah. Right. It also comes up in a reference, j- just hits you everywhere from pop culture to news to commentators. They're always referencing Orwell in 1984, Animal Farm. Very true. And, uh, you know, talking about things being Orwellian. And stuff comes up in uh, 2009, Amazon.com deleted the book's 1984 oh, that's right. and that's true. <laughs> Animal Farm from the Kindle. Not only did they delete them, but they went into your Kindle. They went into your Kindle and got rid of them. And because... probably completely oblivious to the irony. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Yeah. And if you wrote notes, if you wrote side notes in the novel, because that was one of the abilities of the Kindle, okay. that you lost those too. Oh, wow. They kind of stole your notes away from you. Wow. But it, it, <laughs> it's creepy. I, the reason they deleted it is because of what Victor talked about before, this sort of ambiguous copyright. Mm-hmm. I, it, yeah. it, it's actually the version they had was legal in Canada, but not the U.S. Mm-hmm. So they had to, well, they thought they had to delete the ones in the U.S. But they, they did apologize and they uh, settled the court case. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but anyway, that that was very ironic. But yeah, it, it nineteen eighty four pops up all over the place. Uh, Alex jo- Jones is uh, like referring to it right and left. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, all his conspiracy theories are 
you know, he can't help himself. They're just, you know what they went in and deleted in 1984? <laughs> they also went through your records and they looked at everything you've been. They know you've been listening to Alex Jones. Yeah, yeah. They know and fear what you've been listening. Oh yeah, to. he's so amped up right now. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's the uh, with the cell phone things where the um, Apple and Google are tracking where your cell phone is, right? And all right. this business and and there's you know Alex Jones is thinking they're using the cameras built into your computer to watch you mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. So it's there is some paranoia out there, but you know you got to dig into the facts, see what's true, what's not. That's true. Very, very. True. Alex Jones is not. Yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah. just yeah. put that on the table. Let's just yeah, yeah. get that out there yeah. and leave it by by itself. Right, guys. I had a ton of directions I could have gone for the outro music today. I had thought maybe with all the torture in 1984, we could have gone back to the Parkdale Revolutionary Orchestra. Okay. I, I decided maybe I'll save that for another day. Are you going Van Halen, 1984 totally album? awesome. <laughs> nice. Panama. Nah. <laughs> no. Now, what I decided that the people needed to hear was the United Sons of Toil. And the United Sons of Toil is a Madison-based band. They're on their third album. They are a self-described precision Midwestern noise rock band delivered by populist theoreticians. That's a mouthful. But they're a three-piece starring some members of bands that we love, uh, former former bands that we love and bands that are currently uh, in existence that we love, like Knuckle Dragger. Knuckle Bass player nice. uh, from United Sons was a Knuckle Dragger. I love these guys. Uh, I talked to them. They said it was cool to play their song and talk about their their work in the podcast. The album that they just released is called When the Revolution Comes, Everything Will Be Beautiful. And, you know, one of the reasons I really love it is the cover of the album is this giant, beautiful painting by Klavdi uh, Lebedev, which is, it hangs in the museum here in Madison, which they're renaming now, the, the UW Museum. Oh, Yeah. And I just love it, public domain. But just love this, love this picture. But uh, one of the one of the tracks I thought about all the different tracks I could have played. But one of my favorites is "Alcoholism in the Former Soviet Republics." <laughs> this is total noise math rock. Love these guys. I'm going to play the last song off the album called "State Sponsored Terrorism," and I'll talk more about these guys later on. But for anyone in the Madison area or in Milwaukee, they're playing the Frequency in Madison on May 19th. They're playing the Cactus Club on May 20th in Milwaukee. They're going to play the Albion House in Chicago on May 21st. Uh, And then they're going to hit a European tour starting June 15th. So, hey, European listeners, we know you're there. They're going to come to you. I'll tell you some tour dates. You can always look up United Sons of Toil for more information. If Victor sends me the correct web address, I will put it on the Tank Riot webpage for episode 108. I'm not always good at sending the correct <laughs> web address, but yeah. this is United Sons of Toil. Gentlemen, good evening. Good evening from Tank Riot. <laughs> this is John Connor. <laughs> <laughs> How do we live? How do we? Play? 
Let's go.